Hello there, welcome to True Cult Pop, the pop music podcast, I guess, if that's what you want to call it. It's me, Stephen Hill. I hope you're all right. I'm joined, as ever, by the little man about town that he is, Mr. Sam Slight. How you doing, Sam? You all right? I'm very, very well, thank you, Steve. I am so ruddy bloody excited to talk about this album in all the depth that it deserves. I am excited too. I am very, very excited. What you are listening to is part one of the true classic pop uh, album podcast. We do these on our Patreon page. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash true cult pop and sign up for £5 a month, you get two classic albums or albums that Sam and I deem mm. classic albums a month. That's usually over there on our classic, uh, on our Patreon page or on the classic pop tier um we're doing a very very difficult big massive record today so we thought we split in half so we thought what we do is give you you mr random person or mrs random person whoever you are out there who's just happened to be listening to this we thought we'd give you the first half of this for free but if you go over and sign up at patreon.com forward slash true cop pop five pound a month you can listen to the second part of this very very special and what proves I think will prove to be an incredibly lengthy yes. podcast on one of our, I think, collective favourite albums from one of our collective favourite bands of all time. I think it's fair to say that, isn't it, Sam? Abso-fucking-exactly. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, in, in the run-up to this, I mean, there's not going to be a lot of joy when we're actually discussing kind of the story behind it, let alone the actual music contained within the fragile by Nine Inch Nails, but... Um, just in the last few days when I've been listening to it even more than I already do in my, you know, my day-to-day life, I think, as we sit here in the year of our Lord 2023, I think Nine Inch Nails might have just superseded Dillinger as my favourite band. Understandable. Yeah. Understandable. We are going to be talking today, as if uh, you didn't already know, we're going to be talking about The Fragile by Nine Inch Nails, the third studio album from Trent Reznor's Industrial Legends, released on the 21st of September, 1999. So basically what you're going to get with this podcast will be the build up to the record and the first of the two discs therein, our kind of review of the music on the first disc. If you go over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash truecoppop, I said that about four times already, <laughs> and we're only three minutes in, mental. Um... You can listen to us review the second disc and talk about the aftermath of that record. This one, I think, is going to be interesting. We're going to start, I think, with a little bit of context for where Nine Inch Nails were and how we got to this place. Now, there's a period that you and I, and I think many, if you've been listening to me doing podcasts of, of any description over the years, there's a period that gets spoken about a lot that I've talked about a lot, where genuinely dark music was considered something of a critical and commercial darling. Mm. It really, in my mind, peaks in 1994. If you look at the events of 1994, Kurt Cobain's death is one thing, obviously. The Holy Bible by the Manic Street Preachers is one of the darkest records in the history of guitar music. Mm. You get the kind of Britpop starting to turn a little bit. I think you could look at the Bends by Radiohead, yeah. which is a bit yeah. more of a somber, sadder record. You get Korn's debut album, a self-titled Korn album, brought metal and 
I guess not just the sound of metal, but the the sort of emotional core of metal into places where it had never really been before. There's other albums as well. Wait by Henry Rollins is a dark, mm. uh, by the Rollins Band is a dark album. Grace by Jeff Buckley is full of very, very sad, deep, melancholic feelings. Porterhead's Dummy, again, uh, a record full of um, some really sort of very, very somber, dark tones and chords and feelings throughout it. Super Unknown by Soundgarden, arguably, you know, the darkest uh, album of, of their career. Um, but no one was much darker than The Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails, which came out in 1994. An album that obviously we will do as a classic album one day. So I want to keep the chat about The Downward Spiral down to a minimum. But obviously, The Downward Spiral is A, a very, very dark record, mm. B, a very, very successful record, right? Yeah, undeniably. Yeah. Undeniably. Uh, it sold a lot. And it turned Nine Inch Nails into superstars. Particularly, I think, the the big moment was Nine Inch Nails' performance at Woodstock 1994. Mm. Again, don't really want to get into too much regarding uh, Nine Inch Nails around this time because I think it's probably worth saving a lot of it for when we do do the downward spiral. But I just wanted to touch on it because, I mean, actually, you might ask you this in a second as well, Sam, but I was aware of the name Nine Inch Nails because... It's a great name for a band. It's a great it name is. if you're young and impressionable and you <laughs> like the idea of sort of aggressive, angry, heavy music, then you're probably going to go, oh, that band are called Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. That's a fucking pretty uh, crazy name. Um, the first time I saw or heard anything by Nine Inch Nails, I believe, would have been when the BBC showed the highlights package of Woodstock 94 at about midnight, one in the morning, after match of the day on a Saturday night. Mm. And I saw Nine Inch Nails at Woodstock 94 performing Happiness in Slavery. Oh, And I just hell. thought, what the actual fuck is this? Yeah. That is like, it just was scary. Proper scary. Really, really great. When was the first time you heard Nine Inch Nails, by the way, Sam, since we're having this conversation? I can tell you, uh, well, I almost exactly what it was certainly down to like the year in broad month i can tell you exactly where i was as well so i've mentioned him a few times before on various podcasts but um my best mate from back in secondary school uh sole uh he was instrumental in getting me into a lot of well better music basically like you know i've said so many times you know i was just listening to maiden metallica anthrax etc he go on slag off anthrax yeah oh yeah uh, joe, joe belladonna's dreadful uh get that out of the way now <laughs> <laughs> but um I went on this holiday where I discovered Rammstein sort of by accident through um, German MTV that was the only thing that was available in the hotel room. So I found that. And then I came back from this holiday and I was talking to him. I was like, oh, mate, have you heard this band? He's like, yeah, obviously, they're massive. Like, everyone knows them. I was like, oh. He said, have you ever heard Nine Inch Nails? And I said, no. He said, you'd really like them. And he showed me Gave Up from the Broken EP round his house when we were like in the early stages of trying to form a band together and sort of demoing really quite poor material because we were like 14 um but yeah that would have been the first time heard gave up and i was like what the fuck is this and then obviously heard wish and it very much became a <laughs> a very curt downward spiral into the fandom of nine inch nails yeah yeah i mean when you see it and when you see them and how intense and how viscerally exciting they were at that period mm. i think you would struggle as a as a young as a young man uh full of angst like i probably was when i was 14 uh to not just go oh my god i'm fucking amazing yes but that was 1994 now we will obviously cycle back to 1994 in a little bit but i think 1994 
is the perfect climate for Nine Inch Nails to break through in the way in which they did. Five years later, though, that is a long time mm. in popular culture. That is a long time. And, you know, when you think of grunge, essentially, it was like an 18-month thing. I mean, when you look back on Britpop, really, everyone goes on how important that was. But that was only 18 months, two years, maybe. Punk happened and then went very quickly. These scenes kind of come and go very, very quickly. And a lot had happened to the culture that spawned Nine Inch Nails um, before we even get into Trent Reznor's personal journey and why the album sounds the way it did. New Metal, for for a starting point, from when you look at the first Korn album to where it is in 1999, it's become a far easier style to make. It's become a far more formulaic style. And it's also easier to make heavy quote-unquote music and become a a big band Mm. uh, in it as well i mean you would think trent reznor would be the sort of person who would despise new metal you would think that that was the case and i think i think he probably did but even he saw some similarities between his music and corn early on Mm. um i found the interview that he did when the fragile came out there's a feature uh, about nine inch nails coming back in kerrang from kind of september 1999 and he was asked about is there any kind of contemporary influences on the fragile and he said i think some of mine and corn's messages occupy similar emotional territories but i have not had to cater nor will i to things i don't understand i'm not sure who's out there now but there does seem to be a wider age bracket than there's ever been i'm just trying to do what's true to me and when i get into making music i don't believe in it because the kids want to hear it Oh, sorry, if, if when I get into making music, if I don't believe in it because the kids want to hear it, then I'm fucked. I haven't done that yet. And if I do, call me out on it. So essentially, that says to me that Trent Reznor is more than aware that the change in style of music um, has happened. And that a band like Korn, who he, you know, says, you know, we, we occupy similar emotional territories. Korn in 94, sure. Mm. Korn in 99 probably not so much right no corn was superstars at this point yeah recording in you know separate mansions and stuff like that in their tracksuits you know it's, it's a far cry from the i suppose the ethos that informs nine inch and would have informed early corn as you say um i mean uh, yeah he's definitely right in terms of the early days so i suppose yeah downward spiral and debut corn there's definitely a kinship there in terms of themes but more so delivery of those themes that i think trent continues whereas corn i think it's fair to say mellowed out a bit on that you know it did become a bit more glitz and rock and roll hmm yeah i mean the self-titled corn album and the downward spiral are obviously very very different records mm. but like you say i think the same sort of emotional space uh, one is a concept album about a man's descent into self-destruction mm. and the other is a man's uh lashing out at being destroyed from outside forces mm. you know the corn album is a visceral reaction to uh, someone from the, the absolute end of their tether and the downward spiral is watching somebody get to that point mm-hmm. so they are sort of weirdly you wouldn't think nine inch nails and corn necessarily have a lot in common but i think there is that in common from that particular period but by the time you get to the fragile and follow the leader uh, they have nothing in common. No. I don't think. No, 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 no. Nothing at all. No, not at all. There's also, you know, 1994 being that period where that music really kind of talked to people, very, very kind of harsh, dark, angry music. 
I think it's also worth mentioning very, very briefly that we got Dookie, we got Smash, we got Park Life, we got Definitely Maybe. I mean, I think that's why that era is considered such a classic era because it's almost like it got as hard and as brutal and as dark and as nihilistic and as heavy as it could possibly get for the mainstream. And so they kind of had to go in the opposite mm. direction, which was to make things more fun, to make things more upbeat, to make things more sunny. It's sort of the year where it gets as dark as it will ever get, but then also the sun kind of breaks through the clouds as well. And I think, you know, that is brought to its sort of logical conclusion by the time we get five years later to The Fragile. And when you look at the albums from this time that came out alongside The Fragile, I guess in kind of, broadly speaking, alternative culture, Significant Other by Limp Bizkit... <laughs> Yes, is 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 not the holy bible. No. Uh, the Slim Shady LP, uh, you know, it is not dummy nah. by Porter Z. Californication by the Red Hot Chili Peppers is not good. Probably not super unknown or good. <laughs> no, um, Enema of the State by Blink One Eighty Two is you know definitely not far beyond driven by Pantera. <laughs> no. um, Nothing left to lose by the Foo Fighters is the Foo Fighters becoming. A, you know a much lighter band a more not that pal- they were ever yeah. particularly dark band anyway but like they were a much lighter band on that record i think yeah it makes them the palatable stadium rock band that we know today who are sort of good for a couple of singles every now and then you know it becomes accessible mm. doesn't it it's accessibility i think is the, the that, yeah. that's how things change so drastically make yourself by incubus again you know like new metal but pretty with cheekbones and Mm. six packs and you know nice sort of hippie aesthetic and stuff and i mean there's only really the self-titled slipknot album which i don't even think is actually even really that comparable to the to the fragile either no i mean not to the fragile i mean i think there is maybe some again sort of some thematic kinship with like the debut corn album i think you know that's the closest you get to 1994 levels of dark and even then it's only really it's more of an aesthetic thing, certainly for the first half of that record, which, of course, is the best known mm. because it's six, six of the best tracks yeah. in metal ever. But yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the back half, there is definitely that kind of those um, the interest in the perverse and the kind of the more morose and morbid, which uh, naturally I think, you know, it, it's the bedrock of a lot of industrial stuff. Hence, well, which obviously informed uh, Trent Reznor's material well, and still does to this day. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's the closest, think but could, it's still a far, far cry. It's the closest because I think the thing is, is that when you compare Corn and the Downward Spiral, I think there is that comparison that I made. If you compare compare Slipknot and the Fragile, no. Slipknot is a more openly aggressive record. Mm. That is a much more of an of an attack of the record. The Fragile, and then you know, <laughs> the Fragile is just such a world away emotionally from from being really for the most part even that much of an actual attack on sort of outside forces i think Mm. so it's not really a great comparison although i think in terms of it being like oh this shit's dark and heavy i mean resner did some promo for the fragile fun interview did with spin and he said when i see what's going on on that afternoon MTV voting thing. It's like, who are these people? Who's buying this? I know someone is, and I want them to buy my record, but good Christ, how did this happen? And I think that is sort of the world in which the fragile is born into. I mean, the last time really that you'd been given a double album from a sizable rock band 
would have been Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness by Smashing Pumpkins, yeah. which was four years prior to this, which, again, I think was a record which was probably not that well understood on initial listen by a lot of people, uh, even though it did go on to spawn, you know, huge, huge singles and was massively, massively successful. I think the climate was a bit better for that record to come out at that point. Even then, that felt like a massive outlier. So Trent Reznor eschewing, completely eschewing, any of the kind of tropes and trappings of current popular alternative culture, which seemed to be about very, very straightforward, straight ahead, um, quite surface level angst, mm. or or actually prettying stuff up and going, hey, you know, it's actually not everything's terrible. Enemy of the State, Incubus, Californication, they're kind of more fun records. They're more breezy. They're, they're much nicer records. Um, and the Fragile, I think it goes without saying, as we're going to get into, is absolutely nothing like any of them it, it was such an anathema to everything that was going on at that period of time yeah it's the antithesis of what pop culture wanted um and i mean obviously we'll get there far 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 later you know i mean probably in a fair few hours time but you can see that reflected in a lot of the um the reception to it i think you know it people weren't ready for it and didn't understand it at the time and i think you know looking back on it trying to place myself in 1999 not as a five-year-old it's like i can understand why people would have been absolutely bewildered by this kind of pitch black monolith that Reznor has released and especially after you know five-year gap of you know I, i'm sure we'll be touching on sort of some of the singles that came out uh, in that time and some of the remix work that he did but broadly kind of radio silence from him really you know yeah a lot of radio silence mm. and and that's the things that you say that you know the reaction to it um, this is actually not Nine Inch Nails' most successful album. I mean, you probably know what Nine Inch Nails' most successful album is. It's not even their most second most successful record, to be honest. But years and years later, I think it probably is considered. I mean, we'll I think it's a it's a debate to be had about what the quote unquote best mm. Nine Inch Nails album is. That's a tough one, which we we'll probably might have on a, a little bit later. But this is a record that people still talk about in kind of awed, hushed tones. Mm two and a bit decades after it come out. And it's interesting to kind of look back and go, well, how did this defeat kind of all the odds from the time and become that true classic? And how has it managed to persevere all these years later? And why didn't people appreciate just how great it was at the time? And those are the questions that we are going to try and answer over what is going to be... <laughs> About 12 a, hours. A very long time. <laughs> so... um. I think we should probably talk as we get into it about um, the the touring cycle for the Downward Spiral. Although, again, this is probably more of a story for the Downward Spiral podcast. But I think we need to start by talking about the famously debauched self-destruct tour that, uh, that came in the aftermath of the success of the Downward Spiral. So Trent Reznor decided to take out his close friend, Marilyn Manson, and his band, and the Jim Rose Circus out as support. Um, it's here where Manson and Reznor become really, really super, super tight mm. close friends, I think, which actually plays quite a big part in the th th that kind of, that friendship and the crumbling of that friendship plays quite a big part, as we'll discuss in a little bit. Um, you know, Trent had already produced Portrait of an American Family prior to... Uh, this tour coming along and it's also where you have the Jim Rose Circus opening as well now Sam are you familiar 
with the Jim Rose Circus at all? I am not. No. Okay, so the Jim Rose Circus did Lollapalooza a few times, and I don't really know what it was about the Jim Rose Circus that that made people kind of want to associate them with alternative music. But essentially, Jim Rose is a dude, and he's got this odd touring freak show, essentially, right? Uh, of people who would eat light bulbs and nail nails into their face and lift weights with their genitals and all these kind of things. And these people did that for, you know, a a, a living. But also, they just were like that as well. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, it takes a certain sort of person, I think, to want to do that. So the way they behaved on stage, by all accounts, Jim Rose Circus also behaved like that off stage as well yeah and this led to quite a lot of quite famous backstage let's call it shenanigans craziness debauchery whatever you want to call it the level of debauchery was such that trent Reznor, being someone who i think quite famously is socially awkward Mm. around smaller groups of people in social situations felt like he had to keep up and that alongside this kind of crippling anxiety he had he sort of tackled that head on by getting involved with these things and also um that led to the development of quite a serious alcohol and drug um dependency that he had uh in the interview that i found in kerrang he said you can't explain this to people who weren't around it it's not sane but imagine the kind of people that come to that tour and they're all trying to outdo each other some of the guys in the circus have horns and a tail and one of the guys was trying to have trepanation performed in, on him in my studio which is drilling a hole in the back of your head so that the spinal fluid leaks out and you're high forever that's the level that it was getting to pretty soon there was going to be bodies showing up and questions i'm going to point the finger at the jim rose circus for the first time i was ever around him i was eating a light bulb thinking what am I doing? I always get sucked in. Well, we cre- we were sitting in a cafeteria and he said, have a chew on that. I didn't swallow it, but the fact that I even allowed it in my mouth before he kind of trails off. Um, the final dates uh, on the Self-Destruct Tour, um, which ran for 138 shows, started in March 1994 and they went on to February 1995 that was the initial thing so mm-hmm. you've got 11 months pretty much of solid touring with these people light bulbs <laughs> yeah. every night with Marilyn Manson in the corner doing whatever Marilyn Manson does with the Jim Rose Circus every single fucking night for 11 months um there was meant to be four final shows uh in Australia um, where Nine Inch Nails were the headliners of the Alternative Nation Festival on the 13th, 14th, 15th and 16th of April 1995. That would have been the last shows on, on this tour. Um, that had a bill which included, check this out for a lineup, Sam. Headliners Nine Inch Nails, Lou Reed, oh, Faith No More, oh. Hole, Tool, Body Count and Ice Tea, Pennywise, Pop Will Eat Itself, Primus, Live, L7, The Flaming Lips, Ween and therapy. Fuck it. I had to stop oofing because I knew that I was going to do it for every single one. Fuck me. Yeah, oof, yeah. What a, a, good what lineup, a right? lineup. And Ween. That, yeah. And Ween. <laughs> yeah, no, fucking I don't, I don't mind. Um, yeah. You've got to pick on someone, and Anthrax weren't there. so They weren't. I mean, live would have been the one to pick on for my money. But, you know, yeah, fine, fair, whatever. Yeah. Um, 
But that's a lot of touring. Essentially, that is a lot yeah. of touring. That's a lot of drugs. That's 11 months of going mental when you are a socially anxious person already, hanging out with quite a lot of people who have quite a lot of um, rather unsavory traits, yeah. let's call it. Um, that tour has become quite famous. And I think, you know, again, we'll probably save the real ins and outs of it for when we do the downward spiral. But I think it's important to touch on it here. I couldn't handle that. No, fuck no, I don't think I could handle an hour with all that going on. And I mean, especially, um, so it's funny you say, oh, are you aware of the um, that that circus? And it was like, no, no idea. And then as soon as you said about the kind of theatrics that were going on that would continue backstage, it was like, I do know of them because I've read The High End of Low by Marilyn Manson. Uh, Long Hard Road Out of Hell, sorry. Um, Manson's biography. And uh, yeah, it sounds like a, a horrific time, particularly for a person like Trent Reznor, who I think... Yeah, was an angry young man at the time, but more cerebral, I think. And as you say, socially awkward. And then when you put him in a room with those people, one of whom we now know to be Marilyn Manson, you know, incredibly, well, certainly allegedly incredibly manipulative person. It's like, it must have been hell from him. And you think about the content of the downward spiral, the, the, the ideas that informed that concept. It's like, you know, he was already in a, I don't know, a very unstable position of serious depression. It's like adding this kind of violent coercion into the mix and for 11 months i mean fuck me i can imagine he would have been uh well broken if you'll excuse the pun yeah well i mean i don't know again something i'm not sure if people were that aware of this but um, again this is more for the downward spiral but his dog died yes during the recording of the downward spiral broke his fell off a balcony and broke his back and like i mean as a, a pet owner that shit would be Horror. really yeah. really upsetting Horror. so he's yeah. going off on he's recording this album and then they really probably couldn't have ever imagined that they were going to get as big as they did get because by the time that they're playing these sort of final shows you know going into late 94 into 1995 you know th these are this is Night Snails at their kind of commercial peak. This mm. is the the absolute commercial peak of Night Snails and they're playing these huge 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 enormous 20 plus cap arenas and stuff and all this shit's happening backstage and it's kind of all filtered through like you say the lens of somebody who is already socially awkward already depressed has already had this kind of very difficult uh creation of this very 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 challenging dark record mm. who's also had this kind of loss and grief that he's that's all kind of piled on top of him and it makes sense that you know by the time April 1995 comes around, he's like, fuck that. I'm out for a while. I am out. Like, he was burnt out mm. by kind of the middle of 1995. And, you know, the plan was to be like, I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to go away. And I'm, I'm not going to do anything for a little while. But he didn't get the chance to do that because... <laughs> um, there's a few things I think in life that you just the offers that you just cannot refuse. Yeah. And an offer was made for Nine Inch Nails to join the outside tour with his hero, David Bowie. Um, Bowie says it was MTV's fault because I saw the video that MTV banned and I thought that's really good. Um, because of that, I got really into what Trent was doing and what the Downward Spiral was, and I thought it was an, it was an exceptional album. So Bowie offered Nine Inch Nails the chance to play alongside him uh, on the outside tour, which was kind of just kicking off. Mm. 
and so big and this this kind of blows my mind at this point even though i think nine inch nails are still a huge band this kind of blows my mind at this point when you think of what people think of when they think of david bowie bowie offered to be the opening act i know it's ridiculous well which is fucking incredible i mean i suppose you know kind of post left stance i mean it's not really until the album after outside that he really gets out of you know something of a critical and commercial slump i think outside is the start of the kind of bowie renaissance post his mm. pop phase in the 80s um but yeah i mean as you say on paper it's like imagine david bowie offering to open for you like uh, prince maybe be someone that, <laughs> that would make sense for that's about it like i can't imagine bowie playing second fiddle to anyone but, you know, no, he, mad. he was the one making the offer. And it's like, you know, that's, well, we now know how much he and Trent respected each other and how much they informed one another's work over the rest of Bowie's mm. lifetime. And even to this day, you know, I mean, the first time I saw Nine Inch Nails, they covered um, I Can't Give Everything Away from Bowie's final album. So it's like, you know, they, yeah, muses to one another, I suppose. But yeah, fucking hell, David Bowie saying, oh, I'll open for you. Yeah. It's so mad. It's so mad to think that David Bowie would be, you, you go and you, you're like, the support band would be David Bowie. <laughs> that is fucking absolutely mental. And yeah. unsurprisingly, Trent Reznor was massively uncomfortable with this, um, but it just felt like it's too good an opportunity to turn down. So he came back with a sort of an agreement, but with a set of stipulations. So Nine Inch Nails would only remain on the tour for six weeks. He didn't want to do any longer than six weeks because he was completely burnt out. And as we said, he didn't feel comfortable with David Bowie opening for him. Uh, so, you know, considering that's his hero, that's the biggest influence that he, that he had. Yeah. Um, he came back and said, we just fired some ideas back and forth. And when it finally got to the point where we had a few songs done, I'd work on one. And then David would call and say, well, what do you think about these ones? Try these. And then we'd work on more. It was a pretty interesting process. And essentially what you get is Nine Inch Nails doing a set, Bowie coming out and doing a short set with them. Mm -hmm. Ninth Nails going away and David Bowie doing a, a kind of, I was going to say a greatest hit set. It ended up not really being a greatest hit set, didn't no. it? If you look at the set list, <laughs> it's actually quite a lot of new material with a couple of, but you know, I think you would look at it now and you'd go, wow, that set list is great. But at the time, people were probably less familiar mm. with it, which we'll kind of get into in a second. But still, you know, it's a really cool idea. I think it's a really, really fucking cool idea and it's a great... Um, it's a great unique thing to say because anyone can say oh my god i saw this band and this band touring together you saw them touring together but you didn't actually see them on stage collaborating together and that's essentially what you got here i mean uh, to be at one of those shows must have been fucking phenomenal i would i would love to have seen it love to have seen that. mate it would have been unbelievable um <laughs> I don't know that it's kind of a proper official release. I've actually got it on the way in the post as we speak, but I've got the um, the LP version of Back in Anger, which is, you know, kind of collection of mm. shows across those six weeks. But I've listened to bits and bobs on YouTube and stuff. And yeah, hearing Trent and Bowie doing her, it's like fucking hell. That was, you know, yeah, <laughs> just the kind of epitome of uh, incredible auteurs in, in music, really, isn't it? Working together. Yeah, it's really good. Fucking hell, mm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bowie said, there's one pivotal point where we seem to have the same sensibility and we sort of boiled down the choice of songs that we've done to really represent the two points, maybe where we meet nearer than anything else that we do. And it proved really interesting. Historically, it's kind of interesting anyway, you know, it makes kind of a continuity to why on earth should we be working together anyway? And you start to realise why. It's a situation of opposites. So um, essentially you get that Nine Inch Nails opening set and... Bowie comes out 
and they play Subterranean, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, Reptile, Hello Space Boy, and as you mentioned, Hurt before Resner leaves the stage. And Let's Bowie finished the set on his own. Um, you can actually go <coughs> onto YouTube and find the 45 minute long video called Dissonance, which is a sort of, uh, 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 it's the set. It's like kind of highlights of either side mm. plus the full set of the two of them together. Um, it's on YouTube if you want to watch it. It's quite an incredible thing to see and particularly to see Bowie's interpretation of her yeah. um, is, is amazing. And also Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, <laughs> which is quite a kind of, it's a it's it, kind it, of not heavy song but it's kind of an upbeat yeah it's a rocky song isn't it and Reznor turns it into something very 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 harsh sounding absolutely well I was going to say I mean with Scary Monsters yes it is an upbeat song and it's a bit jokey with the kind of faux cockney accent <laughs> but um, I mean if you think about production wise that album is probably the closest Bowie ever got to like noise rock so I can see why Trent leans into that element of it and really dirties it up also that was his thing in that era you know that's what he was doing yeah. in 95 so yeah brilliant it's funny, actually, because I did find an interview with Bowie where um, somebody was saying that, oh, you've clearly been very influenced by Nine Inch Nails over the last few years. And he was like, no, it's Young Gods. Um, I wasn't actually familiar with Nine Inch Nails when I was making these records. It's actually Young Gods, but now I've heard them. I think when you get to Earthly in a year or so later, again, as we'll probably discuss in a little bit, I think you can probably, that's when he really was inspired by Nine Inch Nails. But I think on yeah. that material, when people were like, oh yeah, you can tell that it's Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> Bowie's like, um, not so much actually. It's actually more Young Gods. So, you know, but then I would imagine Trent was very, very inspired by Young Gods as well. So um, that makes sense. Probably why um, they got on. The, probably why they got <laughs> on. Yeah, similar. They are very fucking weird. Well, they are. They are um, yeah. Today, it probably seems insane to imagine that you would go to this show and not just have the best time. Oh, but, mate. but not everyone... Back in 1995, people didn't... They, they thought it was too odd a pairing. So Bowie said, I personally did like the combination of Night Nails and me, but my fans didn't. Bad luck. It was also an extremely young audience between 12 and 17 years old. My starting point Ow. was simply, I've made an adventurous album. What can I do now to turn the concerts as, as adventurous? Looking at it that way, it seemed logical to confront myself with the Nine Inch Nails audience. I knew it'd be hard to captivate them with my music that they'd never heard by an artist whose name was their only familiar thing. And <clears throat> there are reviews for these shows that talk about the audience being a 100% Nine Inch Nails audience, which again seems insane. Yeah. You know, that that it would be Nine Inch Nails, you know, let's, a double headliner mm. and people it being like, I only care about Nine Inch Nails. That's pretty fucking mad. And to some um, reviews mentioned that pe people were getting frustrated with Bowie after Reznor had left and kind of booing and walking out and it being like a, 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 a tough a tough gig for him. I can kind of believe it though, because if you think, you know, sort of 95, we've, you know, you've had grunge, which naturally sort of killed off all the all the dinosaur bands, so to speak. You know, Bowie is in a critical and commercial slump. So I can imagine, I mean, if if the audience is quite as young as Bowie's saying in that quote, well, 12, 12 to 17, that, I mean, 12 that, that no, may, yeah. may I mean, be an maybe. exaggeration, but maybe, who knows? But... <laughs> I would imagine, you know, if you have got a younger audience there who are into Nine Inch Nails, they're going to look at Bowie and sort of see this, yeah, old bloke who's doing a thing that is, you know, sort of tangentially inspired by the same influences as Trent, but without the, well, without the aggression, without the kind of 
flair for danger. Um, I can imagine people would have been a bit pissed off if it was as predominantly a Nine Inch Nails audience as these reviews claim it was. I mean, I don't believe that it was 100% at any of the gigs that the, any reviewer went to. But again, you know, Bowie's albums aren't selling like they used to and the downward spiral exists. So yeah, I, I can I can believe that Bowie would have had a hard time actually. Well, he actually said in those first weeks, we had to adjust emotionally to the fact that we were going to be challenged every night to get in sync with what people were coming to the show for. But then you start to recognise that if you're going to continue, you better enjoy what you're doing. The more we did that, the more it communicated to the audience. That's how it went from survival to being a good tour. Amazing that someone like David Bowie, that deep in his career and of, you know, and, and, and where he is sort of thought of, of culturally mm. in 2023 amazing to think that he talks about survival on a tour like amazing i actually found a review incredibly harsh one of the i picked one line out of it barry proved he was not up to sharing the stage with nine inch nails yet insisted on dragging out his overlong performance to its embarrassingly self-indulgent end oh blimey blimey uh, not not the only review that i think we'll be talking about that's aged poorly <laughs> but you know <laughs> no wow it's actually quite good considering uh some of the shit that we're gonna be talking about yeah, in the second yeah. part. but fucking i mean you'd get fighting words you'd get absolutely dragged over the coals saying that in now yeah the, the, now we get fucking murdered absolutely yeah yeah someone with a you know lightning bolt painted across their face come around your house and ransack you get him in a headlock yeah big time big time um, um but yeah i mean i suppose try, yeah trying to think about the environment in 1995 yeah i can see it i is, can see bowie being not as beloved as we know him to be well we know he was prior and you know after mm. yeah it's 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 a funny one it certainly is a funny one um the thing that i took away from watching that footage and i don't know if you've seen the actual footage of it sam have you watched it i haven't you know what somehow i've managed okay. i've managed to listen to the audio and never come across the footage of it now this for me right this period in this tour sort of talked about as um david bowie is sort of a mentor and although ninth snails were exhausted and trent didn't want to tour and he was you know sort of sick and he was mentally ill at the time and really struggling with his mental health and he was on drugs and he was having a bad time one of the interesting things that you can see if you watch the footage of them playing together on hurt as well on hurt it feels and appears to be this rare sort of chink of light in those barren years because we're going to talk about some pretty dark shit mm. but there's barren years between the downward spiral and the fragile if you watch that performance of Hurt on the distance video, you can clearly see Trent Reznor multiple times smiling as he sings that song with David Bowie. Bloody hell. Now, there aren't many times in general <laughs> that you get to see Trent Reznor smile. No. Right? I think even when he even when he won an Oscar, I don't know he <laughs> smiled. No. Right? But certainly when he's singing Hurt. Hurt. Yeah, fucking hell. Right? How's that going to make you smile? Not really, is it? No. But he is grinning while he's singing this version of Hurt with David Bowie stood two foot away from him. It's clear from that little interaction exactly how much of an impact, I think, this huge impact in a positive way that David Bowie had on him. Bowie was a mentor to Trent Reznor. Mm. I think he's, he's... I've heard him say that on stage in the years since. Yes. Um David Bowie walked a pretty similar path to Trent Reznor, even at this point, you know, 
he had been in the throes of addiction and he'd come through it and kind of used it and it inspired him to make really really incredible art right and everybody kind of knows and accept this to be the, the case now i think maybe back then probably didn't know it quite as much um with, with Reznor at the time but um you know i think he really did offer trent Reznor help and guidance in that short six week period of time and i do kind of wonder if if the downward spiral had come out six months eight months later and Trent Reznor could have done two years on the road with David Bowie rather than a year on the road with the Jim Rose Circus yeah. and Marilyn Manson. I do wonder if he would have got himself into the position that he got himself into. And I also wonder, would the Fragile have sounded like the Fragile without that happening? Yeah, I mean, if he's smiling during her, it's hard to imagine the Fragile existing at all if he'd have had that much time it with It really Bowie. is. Yeah, I don't... Mm. I mean, I don't even know what we would have got. I mean, it would have completely changed Nine Inch Nails' entire trajectory. Well, I mean, Reznor's trajectory fundamentally, but Nine Inch Nails as a result. I mean, would we have even got, I don't know, quite as much bleak material as we've got for the rest of their existence, really? I mean, obviously, things get a little brighter after The Fragile, but yeah, it's a really interesting thing to ponder. But then I suppose, you know... Bowie's stuff wasn't exactly happy-go-lucky and it did get more avant-garde and weird. I mean, maybe we would have seen them do more collaborative stuff, you know, actually maybe even a project that was Reznor and Bowie, some sort of um, yeah, new thing. That, that would have been amazing, yeah, but yeah, say I mean, I think, I think by the time Trent gets to the Bowie outside tour, he is so deep in it that Bowie can offer him advice and guidance and it can be this inspirational thing. But you're sort of sticking a plaster over a gaping wound. Those scars are still there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he wanted to get off the road. So obviously, six weeks on the road with David Bowie. Um, helpful. But Nine Inch Nails started the tour um, uh, on the 14th of September, 1995. Did 27 dates. Finished on the 29th of October, 1995. Um, they played another eight shows. Um, club shows from the 4th of November to the 26th. Uh, sorry, 27th of November, 1995, with Helmet as a support. Ooh, small club. House of Blues, one of them, which I believe is quite small. 1995, Helmet and Nine Inch Nails at House of Blues would have been fucking incredible, or venues of that size. And um, that took the entirety of the Self-Destruct tour, uh, although there are a couple more gigs to do after this, to a whopping 173 shows between March 1994 and November 1995. Bloody hell. That's a lot. That's a lot of shows. Yeah, I mean, uh, I did see sort of just broadly observe or broadly looking at Nine Inch Nails um, in any way, shape, or form that when they got to the end of two thousand nine, when Reznor originally called it quits for the band, I think they'd done something like nine hundred and eighty three shows total. So for the majority, well, yeah. a a large proportion of that's come from that time in his life where he was, you know, so um, so sort of damaged, I suppose. Yeah, it's going to leave a mark in it, but. Uh, Wow, busy, yeah. busy times. <clears throat> busy, busy times. But now, finally, Trent Reznor could rest and vanish. But to where, Sam? Where would he go? He would go to Nothing Studios, which is his uh, his new studios in New Orleans. So Reznor, having famously taken the Sharon Tate murder house for the Downward Spiral, again, quite a lot to say about that, 
um, when we do the downward spiral one day, um, he relocated to New Orleans to write and record the Fragile um, at Nothing Studios, which he has set up in, in 1995. Funnily enough, um, oh, it's not actually that funny, but like the doors from the Sharon Tate murder house that they'd recorded the downward spiral in were brought to Nothing Studios and, and put up oh. um, outside the front of Nothing Studios. Uh, the building was purchased... Um, by Resner, it was actually built in the early 1900s at 450, four, sorry, four five hundred Magazine Street in Uptown New Orleans. Mm. The first thing recorded there uh, that was released was the Marilyn Manson Smells Like Children EP. Oh, good. Um, oh. And then we'll get to Antichrist Superstar in a minute as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, the studio actually shut down sometime prior uh, to 2004 after the events of Hurricane Katrina. Mm. It was spoken about, you know, it, it's gone. Um, Resner said it shut down and the ele- many of the elements from it and what had been sort of built in it are just lost, including the door, that door, that Sharon Tate house door. Wow. Apparently no, nobody knows where that is. Um, it used to be a uh, a coroner's as well. So, <laughs> wow. How, it what a cheerful place. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but that's gone now. But anyway, mm. that is where this album and all the other, pretty much everything else we're going to talk about that was that was recorded was recorded there including and i think again it's important to talk about this antichrist superstar mm. by marilyn manson so having produced the first two manson albums all the smells of Ch- children and the um, portrait of american family ep and yeah. the portrait of american family um obviously touring together mm. they got very close they became friends um marilyn manson was a protege Trent Reznor it's pretty obvious that he would go and um, bring Manson back to Nothing Studios to make what would be the breakthrough album of his career now back when this was right act we've actually done a fine but fairly rudimentary classic album on Antichrist Superstar I think it's actually the second or third one and it's not something I suggest that you go back to uh, on one hand because it was sort of before we'd really figured out the format and the best way of doing these classic albums so it's not great and also because you don't want to hear people saying nice things about Marilyn Manson these days really do you no it's a tough one I mean it is it is that thing of oh all those uh you know conservative right wingers at the PMRC they were right after all and it's like well yeah should have seen it coming but at the same time you know you still never really know quite how how bad it could be, uh, unless you've yeah. read The Long Hard Road Out of Hell, where he basically explicitly tells you everything it's that he was doing in, in 1995. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's a difficult one, because, I mean, obviously, Antichrist Superstar is an incredibly important and influential and very, very good album, but I'm loath to say anything nice about Brian Warner himself, so... So let's just talk about the relationship between the two, which I think is something that plays a key dynamic into forming Trent Reznor's psyche as we go into the mm. fragile. Um, we're going to slightly retread some of the steps that I already touched upon on that special, but like I say, you don't really need to go and listen to it anyway, so I'm going to do that. The recording of that album was brutal. Yes. Absolutely brutal. So when Bowie gets off the road, sorry, Bowie, uh, when Trent gets off the road with Bowie and having done those few shows with with helmet his intention was to go and make music to sort himself out and to get off to get clean get off the drugs um but manson was not doing that the chaos and the self-destructive nature of that tour um had been sort of built upon um 
they were traveling the other direction the whole manson camp if you know anything about the recording this album you'll know that it was a band who were even more drug fueled even more hedonistic than they were on the self-destruct tour for the first couple of months everybody in the manson camp would spend the time that they recorded just getting fucked up they would go to a bar they would get into trouble they would either end up in jail or in hospital they would come back to the studio they would sleep it off and then they'd do it all over again for the first three months of the recording of that record not one single song was finished and something which you know i know we're looking at a five-year gap between albums in, in the downward spiral and the fragile but if you look at the productivity of Trent Reznor prior to that, mm. you know, Pretty Hate Machine comes out in 89, ends up being a kind of sleeper big hit. You get Fixed and Broken, then the Downward Spiral, then um, further down yeah, the so spiral, spiral, whatever it's called yeah. as well. You get you get the Natural Born Killers soundtrack, mm. uh, which he worked on as well. You know, he was a busy dude. Trent Reznor was doing, you know, he was producing people's albums as well. Say what you like about him, but particularly in those early years... <clears throat> he was somebody who was getting shit done you know he was a productive he was a productive guy and you've got to be frustrated if you're trying to produce this album from this person and you are desperately clinging on to music and work to kind of help you through this rough patch in terms of how bad your mental health has got as you're trying to get clean that's going to lead to a massive falling out in it, surely. Uh, it, uh, only can, yeah. There's absolutely no way that it doesn't explode, you know, quite publicly and ugly, uglyly, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a recipe of disaster, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for Manson's part, he actually blames Reznor for a lot of the problems. Of course he does. Of course he does. Uh, he says in his book which you've already mentioned. Mm. Not only was nothing getting done, but everyone was telling me that it was weak, poorly executed, and simply a repeat of what Trent had already done with a downward spiral. But maybe they had never really taken the time to listen and to understand the idea. Maybe the album they had in mind for Marilyn Manson was not the one I had in mind. It seemed like Trent and I wanted to make different records. I saw Antichrist Superstar essentially as a pop album, albeit an intelligent, complex, and dark one. I wanted to make something as classic as the records I had grown up on. Trent seemed to have his heart set on breaking new ground as a producer and recording something experimental, an ambition that often ran in opposition to the tunefulness, coherence and scope I insisted on. I had always relied on Trent's opinion in the studio, but what was I supposed to do now that our opinions differed? No matter what anyone said, I knew Antichrist Superstar was not the same as a downward spiral, which was about Trent's descent into an inner, sophisticated world of self-torment and rest and wretchedness antichrist superstar was about using your power not your misery and watching that power destroy you and everyone else around you so manson basically just thought Reznor was like this is shit yeah so everyone i don't want to do this everyone else's fault else yeah and it's funny isn't it that uh marilyn manson of all people would expect us to believe the victim yeah <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Reznor began to use the main room at Nothing Studios to work on the soundtrack for David Lynch's Lost Highway movie. So he basically just downed tools and fucked off. Yeah. And, into the other <laughs> room and just didn't do anything. It was not even there for a recording of the, of the album. It all kind of came to a head when the album was finished um, and the band had one last bunch of shows to do. Um, so Antichrist Superstar was on the verge of coming out 
um, from Reznor's part, by the way. The first time that anyone ever really found out about his feelings on this was um, just before The Fragile was released. Um, he told Rolling Stone in their July 1999 issue that my best friends turned on me, a group of people I spent some time with recording an album with, and their name has two words in it. They start with the letter M. So he's not being very subtle there. No. But he's basically saying, like, you know, people turned on me. So the final gigs that are kind of under the banner of the self-destruct tour were the Knights of Nothing shows that Trent Reznor used to showcase his signings to the Nothing label um, in the final part of 1996. Nine Inch Nails headlined the shows and they were joined by Meat Beat Manifesto Filter and Marilyn Manson. They did one in New Orleans on the 30th of September 1996, one in New York on the 5th of September 1996, and one in Atlanta on the 8th of September, 1996. At the New York gig, the tensions between Manson and Reznor were an all-time high. And with the build that was happening to Manson with the album coming out, you know, at this point, people are talking about Marilyn Manson a lot. And I think he thinks he's about to sort of usurp Trent Reznor mm. as the big rock star of... Because it was always Reznor and my protege, Marilyn Manson. Manson, I think, now believes that he is at least on sort of a level footing with Trent and about to kind of become much bigger than him. Which, you know, to be fair, that, that did happen in the aftermath of this. But he didn't really want to play the show having to support Nine Inch Nails. Um Again, in the long road out of hell, he says, none of us wanted to play this Nothing Record showcase in the first place. And now I've inadvertently injured my drummer, nailing him with a microphone stand and landing him in the hospital. We had wanted to do a Marilyn Manson show to kick off the tour for Antichrist Superstar, but this turned into some strange sort of ego trip, which I'm sure was just to make us look foolish. I'm going to go to sleep now and pretend like this didn't happen. It wasn't the beginning of the tour. It was one last favour. Now, that is contrary to the Kerrang! review of September the 21st, 1996. Skunk and Antsy on the front cover of Kerrang! Nice. Sam, those were the days. Ah, the good old um, days. Before you got this, they reviewed... Employed to serve rubbish. Oh, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> they reviewed the Manson Nine Inch Nails show at the Irving Plaza in New York on the 5th of September. And Manson, you know, this was a sort of a, a fairly famous incident that happened mm. where Manson sort of freaked out on stage and he's going oh it was an accident and you know oh it's, oh god bloody hell it was an accident now it's been fucked up we didn't want to do it we were doing it as one final favour tonight it's now it's like a favour and all this sort of thing like, fucking little um, rat honestly Don Kay in his review says it was either a moment of pure stupidity a weak move by a group not known for their live prowess or a spontaneous flash of real rock and roll danger so lacking in many of today's bands Whichever way you look at it, the sight of Marilyn Manson clubbing drummer Ginger Fish with his mic stand, swiftly followed by bassist Twiggy Ramirez hurling his instrument at the poor guy to abruptly end their set halfway through 1996, really set the crowd buzzing during tonight's show. So if Twiggy's chucking the bass at him as well, that yeah. doesn't seem like an accident to me. The like evening it. is billed as Nothing Records Night, although by the time the show rolls around, it's no secret that the founding of Nothing, a certain Trent Reznor, is planning a surprise night's now set. 
It's a job of fellow Nothing Act, Mar Nothing Act Marilyn Manson to warm up the crowd with a short blast of sections from their forthcoming Antichrist Superstar album. For some strange reason, they begin playing weaker, thrashier tunes like Irresponsible Hate Anthem and the aforementioned 1996, throwing in Burn the Witches for good measure. But then suddenly, during a fist song, Manson wheels around, swings his mic down at Ginger and then stalks off stage. Twiggy hurls his bass in the same direction and follows his singer, leaving the unfortunate drummer collapsed on the boards, blood pouring from his head, waiting to be stretched by an ambulance to the road by the road crew um brutal crikey after that little display it's up to Res resner is not so merry men to keep that momentum flowing and they do easily the five piece come rushing out in a blur of black energy and manage to keep up an intense momentum throughout an e the 80 minute 12 song set opening with terrible eye and extended march of the pigs trent soon turns the show into a fast and loose jam session as first kevin from fellow industrious prick and then clint from back black country Grebo's popperly itself hop up for she loves me and rsvp respectively that would be clint mansell the acclaimed yeah uh score yeah composer um, composer yeah um but the highlight of the evening comes with resnet and his original guitarist richard patrick now one half of filter are reunited for a scorching head like a hole for a band that haven't played live for close to a year night snails are tight brash and dynamic there's no doubt they're electrifying live unit the night's closer something i can never have is a perfect combination of post-industrial angst and emotional theatrics the only complaint is that there's no new material aired but that is a very small complaint indeed yeah no new material probably because there wasn't any mm. there wasn't any new material to actually play you know two years after the downward spirals come out Trent hasn't actually got anything for this next album because he's been doing all this other stuff yes uh, so there's sort of nothing there for them to play and that show well, not that show, actually. The next two nights later, three nights later, in Atlanta on the 8th of September 1996 would be the final Ninth Nails show live for three years. They wouldn't play again for another three years. Blimey. When you think they've done like 170-odd shows in a year and a bit, to then go three years without doing anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it, it... just sort of vanished. It shows just quite how burnout and fucked up he was i guess that he needed to take that time to go and figure out next steps mm. blimey yeah yeah i didn't but i think yeah. the intention was to get something out yeah but yeah. um you know it didn't really work out like that no i mean i, so, I didn't realize it was three years like i kind of i assumed there'd be stuff in between but wow Blimey. Nothing. Nothing at all. So it was 1997 when Night's Nails moved into Nothing Studios to start work on what would be uh, The Fragile. Mm. It would also be where much of the unheard and now defunct Tapeworm project would have been born as well. So I thought we'd talk about Tapeworm a little bit. For those of you who don't know, Tapeworm was a project that came from the aftermath of Downward Spiral where Danny Loner and Charlie Clouser uh, of, of Nine Inch Nails um, began writing songs for this upcoming next new Nine Inch Nails album. Songs that Trent Reznor basically felt were not right for the uh, for the record. After some conversations, it was agreed that the pair would work on that material in another guise whilst Reznor also worked on The Fragile in the studio as well. So... Closer and Loner and Loner slowly but surely began to sort of formulate the, these ideas, and um, Reznor decided that he liked it and would collaborate with them. Other names came along as well that actually did come into the studio: yeah. Maynard James Keenan, yeah. Philip Anselmo and Dimebag Darrell, Zach Della Rocca, 
Richard Patrick, Alec Empire, Atticus Ross, Paige Hamilton um, from Helmet, all listed as potential either participants or people who did actually come in and contribute and record something. Uh, Tommy Victor from Prong has been interviewed saying that he actually went into the studio and recorded some stuff in there as well. Um, by the time the Fragile be completed, Lona said they had three finished tracks for Tapeworm. Uh, Phil Anselmo at the time said that the songs were a mixture of heavy Nine Inch Nails meets Pantera, mellow Pink Floyd The Wall type songs, and he said the songs with Maynard were psychedelic groove-orientated verses and anthemic choruses. Sounds like everyone was no, playing was, uh, to their strengths. So. Well, it sounds like it would be quite, you know, like, we, I was excited about uh, this, you know. Like, it, 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 mythical. It sounds like it should have, it could have been the best, well, by far and away the best super group of all time, if it ever transpired. Definitely. Yeah, it would have been amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it got to 2001 two years after Fragile came out and Alan Mulder who is a producer um, who, who worked with, with Trent um, and has done and did do for many many years said that there were demos for more than an album's worth of material mm. but by 2004 many of the faces in Night Nails had changed and the project basically just sort of ran out of steam interestingly there seems to be some idea from Charlie Clouser that his material initially was going to be used by Trent Reznor for Nine Inch Nails. And maybe the fact that it didn't uh, did end in causing yet another riff between Trent and other band members and also slowing the process of both Tapeworm and The Fragile down a little bit. Mm. Because I found a little news piece in an August 1998 issue of Kerrang! that says, Nell's Return. Ooh. They really don't, lads. No. They don't. They <laughs> no, really don't. August 1998, that's a year before The Fragile came out. Nine Inch Nails are expected to release their new album before the end of the year. And it seems that it will be more of a band effort than a Trent Reznor solo project. That's a They've got badly. that badly, <laughs> badly wrong. Very, very wrong. Mm. Very wrong. Um, yeah, it's, it's a little interview with Charlie Clouser. And he says, Trent is charting the course. And he has a clear vision of how he wants things to sound. But Danny and I have been able to contribute a fair amount. And some of the songs we've been working on have grown out of sessions with all of us fiddling around in the studio. Uh, it goes on to say that apart from the core trio, a major number of guests have been roped in to contribute to the record. These include Paige Hamilton of Helmet and Adrian Bellew of King Crimson, drummers Bill Rifflin from Ministry and Tony Thompson of Powerhouse and Genesis, keyboard player Mike Garson, who's been touring with the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, reports also claim that top producer Steve Albini was involved in the project, mm. although his role remains unclear. Uh, th that is the only thing they got right. Uh, Steve Albini did do a little bit of work. Yeah. On the fragile. <laughs> that's, so that's yeah. the, only, the only thing they got right. Um, this is August 1998. This is long before we had heard anything about tapeworm as a concept. Now, looking back on that and finding that, I think, could it be that Charlie Clouser was told... Yeah, 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 mate. Go, yeah, no, definitely go and work on this stuff. Yeah, man, do it. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do this. is going to be the Night Snails album. Yeah, cool. We're all going to, this is going to be different this time. We're all going to work on it together. Completely unaware that it was never going to be used at all. It certainly could be. I mean, just reading that quote, or you reading that quote, hearing that quote, he sounds um, enthusiastic but naive, I would say. So I, I can believe that he wouldn't be gelling with Trent at this time in his <laughs> life, you know. Her. it's so mad isn't it yeah. you just think that like because I, 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 I saw that i was like oh that's gonna be tapeworm and tapeworm's gonna be nothing <laughs> but he is properly like and the, the, you know the, 
August, so you got September, October, November. Four months away. Uh, well, yeah, four, got four months to get the fragile out. Like, mate, that ain't happening. Yeah. Well, yeah, and well, in actuality, thirty months later, and between uh, Lona and Clouser, they get what one writing credit each across the whole album. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think I think bless poor poor Charlie. I know. I almost yeah. feel a bit bad for him. Trent stitched him up there, and he oh, really stitched him. You up. go and, absolute stitch. Him. You go and do press. Go on. You've written so much for the album. Go on. You you have a you have a go. <laughs> oh yeah, no, we're all going to be on it, mate. Yeah, we're all going to be there. Yeah. Oh, your ideas we'll are there. they're right, no, no, right no. there on the fridge, mate. Paige Hamilton will be there. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> the only thing they got right is Steve Albini is kind of involved he a bit. Did a bit of mixing, Great. yeah. Um, a year before the album was released, Trent Reznor did actually speak to Q magazine and he said that the new album could be irritating to people because it's not traditional Nine Inch Nails. Think of the most ridiculous music you could ever imagine with nursery rhymes over the top of it. It's a bunch of pop songs. Uh, that is something of a red herring. <laughs> a little bit. I think bit. it's fair to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fair to say. Um, the only material that we got between sort of the downward spiral I guess post the release of the Downward Spiral remix companion piece further down. Is that what's called? Further Down Spiral? I can't remember. Further Down Spiral, yeah. yeah. Um, further Down Spiral, yeah, yeah. Um, we got a total of four songs and one video game soundtrack that you could only hear if you bought the game. Mm. That's it. In a in a in a in a four year period. Which when I say, you know, you consider that prior to this, Trent Reznor was very 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 sort of prolific at getting his material out to get so few and such a small amount of stuff mm. it does go to show that there was definitely shit going on that we now look back on and go oh yeah we should have really should have seen that come in sort of seen right. that really but let's go through them so the first one as i mentioned he did a video game soundtrack for quake mm. um resner was sort of so fucked up after the tour that he basically becomes something of a recluse and um he agreed to do the quake soundtrack because he he loved he loved those games basically mm. um that was released on the 22nd of june 1996 although it wasn't available uh as a commercial release until it came out on vinyl on the nine snails web store uh in september 2020 so chris vrenner another name who was massively associated with Nine Inch Nails mm-hmm. um, over the years helped with the making of the album I found an interview with him talking about how they got involved saying that uh, during the making of the Downward Spiral they'd basically get up and make coffee and then play Wolfenstein 3D for a few hours before doing any work because Reznor was such a big fan of first person shooter games since 1993 when they I guess they first sort of came along with Doom and yeah, I mean, all that kind of stuff Doom set the standard and it basically has only been surpassed by the kind of rebooted dooms i would say pretty much so it, oh, i don't it was, know that enough about it to say but like oh mate i reckon. mean basically yeah well for me I, I really like the new dooms but yeah i mean Reznor, you know he was there at exactly the right time you know he would have been the right age to properly appreciate perhaps on maybe an even deeper intellectual level than it should have been how good it is blowing demons faces off with a shotgun so good for him yeah good. Yeah. yeah good um he loved those games so much that when they went out and toured the Downward Spiral and the Self-Destruct Tour, he got two PCs, put one at the front of the tour bus and ran a cable to the back of the tour bus with connected the other one so that they could play death matches against each other on the tour. So it doesn't actually sound that debauched. No. I thought you were like, <laughs> saying how you're doing drugs and stuff. You're playing first-person shooter games. You can play you Doom after bastard. you've eaten your light bulb, Trent. 
Yeah. Uh, Verena says, Trent would talk about this stuff in interviews and somehow the guys at ID, who were the makers of the game, found out that Trent was a huge fan. Trent and I flew to Dallas to meet everybody. Went out to dinner. It was just a bunch of nerds, famous nerds with too much money. And they asked us if we wanted to do this new game called Quake they were working on. Then the game comes out and one of the weapons that they did was the nail gun. And when you pick up the ammo packs, you see the Nine Inch Nails logo on the wooden crates of the ammo. And that was their way of tying it into Nine Inch Nails and everything like that. It was one of those special moment collaborations. Two organizations that mutually respected and loved what the other one did. It just kind of worked out that way. That was how the whole thing came to be. Just a couple of fanboys. Um, Reznor is such a big fan of this game and this style of game that do you know how much money he charged to to do the Quake soundtrack for them? Oh, I don't, but I feel like it's going to be zero dollars. Correct. Yeah. It was nothing. Yeah. He charged them nothing he also told maximum uh, which is a video game magazine it's not music it's textures and ambiences and whirling machine noises and stuff we tried to make the most sinister depressive scary frightening kind of thing <laughs> it's been fun <laughs> classic resonance oh, uh, in it uh, in a review of the game, the magazine GameSpot said, simply put, this is the best soundtrack ever created for a computer game. Um, Reznor loved the Quake game once it came out so much that he became a bit obsessed and he ended up playing it obsessively instead of working on material for the Fragile. Oh, so honestly, that that's a problem. Um, what do you think of the Quake soundtrack? Sam. Uh, it fucking absolutely brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. And as Trent says, you know, kind of in his mission state, or sorry, not Trent, as was said in that mission statement there, um, it's it's not kind of a set piece type video game thing. It is ambient noises that make sense in the context of an arena shooter. You know, I mean, Quake is not something that has a story. It is basically just go and shoot things. Um, and I think the soundtrack complements it perfectly. And actually, it's funny, listening back to it for this, I had such a sort of kinship with, um, have you ever listened to possibly the scariest piece of music I've ever heard? Have you ever heard the unreleased themes for Hellraiser by Coil? No, I haven't, no. Oh, mate, it's it's about 20 minutes and honestly, <laughs> absolutely fucking terrifying, obviously. Um, Peter, oh my God, I've lost, I've forgotten his name, but your man from Coil who's in Throbbing Gristle and everything like that um, makes the broken uh, sort of faux snuff film in collaboration in conjunction with Trent I can believe that that EP would have been something that would have influenced the making of Quake because it is yeah it's kind of ambient soundscapes it's not riffs and songs that are meant to be played during kind of set piece battles like you get with Mick Gordon in the uh, in the Doom reboots that I just referenced a minute ago you know that's more of a soundtrack of songs this is a soundtrack that you can just have on and kind of lose yourself in I very very nearly bought um the LP of this when it did go on sale back in 2020 because yeah. I think it's marvellous. I'm a big fan. I'd never listened to it because it had never been commercially available and I never played these games yeah. before. So I'd never listened to it until I, I actually um, listened to it for this. And at first I was like, holy shit, this is great. Yeah. And then it does start to become well ambient. Like really, really ambient. Yeah, and I am yeah. a little bit like, do I need to have played the game? Do I really need to have understood it? But I think the fact that it's so weird. And you think that that probably, you know, again, in the context of 1996, mm. when, I mean, harsh to say it's the best. I mean, have you not played Mario Kart, mate? Or have you not played <laughs> Super Mario World? Best, best up until 1997, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, until yeah, Nobu Matsu starts um, doing Final Fantasy stuff properly, this was the best video game soundtrack. Right, yeah. But it's cool. <laughs> right, it is yeah. cool. And it's certainly something that, you know, uh, obviously he would go on to 
do with far far greater notoriety and success mm. far bigger projects because that quake was big but like you know not as big as the social network i would argue probably not no mm. yeah anyway uh it's pretty good that um the four songs that he was involved in i mean these aren't even all nine inch nail songs but there were four songs that he was involved in so we've got the perfect drug be the first one yes from the 1997 David Lynch film, The Lost Highway. As I said, Trent Reznor produced the entire soundtrack. Uh, it's got Rammstein on it. It does. It's got Manson's on it as well, I believe. It's got uh, Bowie's on it as well. There's a, you know, it's a, it's a good it's a good soundtrack. Um, but it just sort of randomly dropped as a single. I remember it sort of randomly came on on Super Rock in 1997. And I was like, oh shit, because I had never been... You know, I was re- I loved Nine Inch Nails, mm. and I had the Downward Spire, and I had Pretty Hate Machine. I had, you know, Broken, Broken yeah, yeah. and I was like, oh my god! And then suddenly it was like, there's a new Nine Inch Nails video from nowhere, um, and I absolutely loved it. And I remember, you know, the the Perfect Drug remixes coming out as a, a sort of single. Um, I'm watching the video, uh, which was done by Mark Romanek, who also did Closer. Uh, did Johnny Cash's version of Hurt. He did the Scream video by Janet and Michael Jackson, which was the most expensive music video mm. ever made when it came out. He did Cachise by Audio Slave. And best of all, he did the video for Can't Stop by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Ooh, oh, what a career. Can't have it all. Um, yeah. Now, it's weird because I fucking love this song mm. and I love the video as well. Um, but they never played it live until they played it at Red Rocks in 2018. I've seen them play it twice now because they, they they brought it back on this um, this last tour that we saw in, in 2020, both you and I. Mm. Uh, they played it at Brixton. Yep. They also played it in the first night when I saw them in Cornwall. Um, but Trent doesn't care for this song very much by all accounts. Yeah, it's weird because what I think, what is it, total, it's been played like 23 times or something like that, as you say, many f- times. first time in 2018. And I did notice actually when I was doing a bit of set list deep diving, you've seen it every time it's ever been performed in the United Kingdom. Those are the only yes, two I UK have. performances of it. And it's weird to think because it's a fucking great song. It's amazing. Yeah. I think it's a brilliant song. Um, in 2005, Trent was on the radio on Rock Show and he said, the only thing I think I really don't like that much is a perfect drug. It was one of those things where you have to do a track for a movie. The mindset you kind of adapt in that situation, or I did, was let's go and experiment, see what happens. And it's not, you know, whatever comes out of it. It's not the end of the world. And I think that what came out of it married with a bloated over budget video feels like the least thing that I would play to someone if they said to me play me you know the top 100 songs you've written that probably wouldn't be in the top 100 I'm not cringing about it but it's not my favorite piece I also found another interview with him um, although I didn't actually grab the the proper quote but he basically was saying he thinks that song is the only time he has been influenced by outside sources uh, he says the drum and bass part he was listening to a lot of drum and bass mm. at the time and that big drum and bass freak out at the end, which I think is absolutely amazing. Oh, mate, um, yeah, yeah. But he said it's the first time he felt like he was being led, and it's a clear example of him aping what he was currently listening to rather than a reflection of the thing that he wanted to do himself. I can see that, and obviously we know Trent Reznor, you know, is such a kind of stickler for his own artistic integrity and how he perceives it and how he perceives that other people will see it. I mean, you know, set up an imprint within Interscope Records because he didn't want people messing with his creative vision. Um, I 
don't buy it. It doesn't work, though. This is a fucking amazing song. And to be honest, I can see that, yes, it doesn't really fit in. It is a bit of a weird kind of anomaly in the in the intervening years between Downward Spiral and The Fragile because it's quite it's quite rocky in its sensibility and it's got that kind of elegantly wasted like here's a fucked up 90s rocker let's exploit their drug addiction for kind of entertainment value kind of thing to it but I mean it's still it's nine inch nails and you know I mean basically everything Trent Reznor touches turns to gold and it's brilliant I do also think quite significant that you can hear a bit of that kind of ukulele plucking that I think informs a lot of the instrumentation and composition of the fragile so I feel like it does kind of lead in but tonally it does feel quite at odds with the albums either side mm. of it it does yeah it does I mean I I just think it's such a great it, it's it it's a perfect single yeah you know like it, it's a perfect standalone track from a period and maybe it's because I was just so thirsty for Nine Inch Nails material mm. at that point having sort of got into them and then them just fucking vanishing you know when I got into them in 95 or whatever it would have been that you know they didn't come over to the UK I didn't go to I wasn't going to gigs any either and they didn't come over to the UK when I was into them and I just saw this thing I was like oh my god and then I got all the albums I was like oh my god and then you finally get a new thing and then you feel like you wait mm. you wait and you wait when you're 15 16 17 those years feel like a year feels like fucking eternity now, but yeah but it feels like fucking forever so i felt like i was waiting forever for the fragile to come along so when the perfect drug came on and it was so good and it mm. also you know like maybe it is a kind of surface appropriation of the thing that nine inch nails do but it's like for me it's actually just a really fucking great pop song i yeah, love it it's a fucking banger yeah don't get me wrong i mean i i love it I just, I can, I can, I'm trying to sort of <laughs> understand Trent's quite stubborn viewpoint about uh, disliking it because it's like, it's so good, mate. How, how can you not yeah. be proud of it? <laughs> yeah, it is really good. Mm. Um, so that is the only song released under the Nine Inch or Nails released banner. By Nine, by Nine Inch Nails. Mm. Uh, there is also the Nine Inch Nails remix. It's not even really a remix, but it's really a remaster uh, or reimagining of I'm Afraid of Americans by David Bowie. Mm. So this is the final single from Bowie's Earthing album, an album that confused a lot of people at the time with Bowie going full drum and bass here and there and bits and bobs. But still, this is a fucking banger. This is a song that he ended his Glastonbury 2000 set with. Mm. Uh, this is a song that Trent has now taken up playing himself yep. uh, on a variety of occasions. I mean, I think I've seen him do this song three times. So I've seen Nine Inch Nails twice and he did it at the first show that I saw them at which is Royal Albert Hall he did it alongside mm. um, uh, no sorry it wasn't no I'm pretty sure he did it no, he didn't he did, did it, it at Brixton. Brixton yeah yeah sorry it wasn't uh, Royal Albert Hall yes he did it at Brixton yeah yes. he didn't he did do it at the uh, the Royal Festival Hall a few days before yeah. the Royal Albert Hall show that might have been what I was thinking of a show that I didn't yeah. go to <laughs> gutted yeah uh, yeah he should be going. Um this version uh, with Trent in the video um turn it into a kind of a sort of duet i guess the closest thing you ever get really to a recorded duet between the pair of them mm. this song is just fucking awesome yeah like what an absolute tune i mean i've got a lot of love for earthling i think it you know <laughs> yeah I, I really like it yeah. yeah well i mean funnily enough actually talking about sort of older patreon stuff 
Uh, I actually suggested it as one of the writers' reviews way back in the day. I think it only got in because two other people did as well. So you're like, oh, we can't ignore Sam for that much longer, <laughs> which is yeah. good. But um, yeah, I fucking love Earthling. I think it's brilliant. But I'm afraid of Americans is is far and away the best thing on it. And like, I love Little Wonder. I love Battle for Britain as well. I think it's it's a great, really consistent album. But mm. what a land! I mean, it, it's it's the definitive '90s Bowie song, hands down. <laughs> I think so, yeah, yeah. I think so. I, I mean, that, 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 burden, burden. Yeah. That, that weird little thing, that is so recognisably Trent. Mm. Oh, Do you know what I mean? It just feels like, it just seems so, rec- you go, that must be Trent Reznor. It's got his fingerprints all over it. And then, yeah, as, yeah. You, as you say, when you do listen to the sort of, the V1 remasters, it's like, well, I think, again, thinking about these remixes in the context of going into the Fragile or then kind of being the stepping stone there, I think it's really interesting that he, accentuates the song that Bowie had already got there that was so clearly influenced by and probably worked on by Trent prior mm. anyway. But that V1 remix that he does where the the kind of shrill synths are a little bit sharper and then the guitars and the distortions are a bit muddier. It's that dichotomy and that kind of um, more apparent difference in textures. It's like, that's the fragile again. You know, that just informs where he's going to go next. And I think it's so cool to hear <laughs> a Nine Inch Nails take on a David Bowie song. I wish we could have heard more yeah would have been good eh? i mean it's great i mean i think apparently after um the so, so trent is the the sort of he's johnny uh yes from the, sorry, john john is an american <laughs> um he is johnny in the in the video in the kind of taxi driver yeah. inspired video for the song and um apparently after a picture of Reznor and bowie on the video shoot surfaced um Trent, who, you know, this is 97. He's been a bit of a recluse mm. for some time at this point. Saw himself uh, looking fat and fucked in his own words. Yeah. And uh, it became something of a wake-up call to him. Not that it changed things immediately, but it's one of the things that he credits as being like, oh, shit, I need to sort myself I need to out. Sort myself. Yeah. I need to sort myself out. So it's kind of important on, on that level as well. Um, the other two things we'll just kind of breathe th- through briefly victory the nine inch nails remix uh of victory the 1998 puff daddy and the family song fair play to puff daddy around this time he was working with system of down rob zombie dave grohl doing lots of remixes and rock remixes and covers of songs that adopted you know big rock stars of time from from getting involved um you'd bloody love that now wouldn't you oh yeah you'd love that yeah that'd be wicked imagine if fucking kendrick and code orange or something like that fucking have it you fucking love that. I mean, you know, I guess back then, oh, it's not fair to say that System of a Down worked, but, you know, Rob Zombie was probably as big as Puff Daddy at that point anyway. So yeah. you're looking at, you know, now you go, oh, Puff Daddy would be way bigger than, well, probably not System of a Down, but System of a Down, this was on their first album before they yeah, became yeah. massive. And, you know, Grohl obviously had been in Nirvana, so he was massive as well. But you'd love to fucking see that shit. I, I, you know, and um, work with Trent Reznor as well. I mean, I think, I think this is decent victory. I think it's decent. I think it's decent. So I listened to um, the original for the first time before listening to the remix. Mm. So I've basically heard both of these like a handful of times anyway. Um, yeah, I think it's decent. I think it's an interesting spin on it, and it does have you know the kind of clattering percussion that we get in the the darkest periods of Nine Inch Nails, which is to say, Downward Spiral and the Fragile. Um, and I really like that bass heavy mix that he's given it the emphasis on the kind of sub frequencies which made me both think that maybe that maybe that was a catalyst for the inclusion of dr dre 
uh, in some production on the fragile which we'll get to later yeah but then also i mean fast forward uh what seven eight years um working with saul williams as well and it's like may- yeah. maybe this is kind of the genesis of the seed of that idea but yeah i mean it's a remix i think it's pretty cool it's cool to hear puff daddy and notorious big over a, a nine inch nails instrumental essentially it is yeah, yeah it is i mean what i will say is it's not all about the benjamins uh that he did with <laughs> Uh, Rob Zombie and Dave Grohl, which is fucking amazing. But that's just actually a much better song to begin with. Yeah. Um, but if you want to listen to a rock remix of a Puff Daddy song, All About the Benjamins is fucking brilliant. Um, still, this sold about 700,000 copies. Yeah. Not bad, is it? It's not bad. Nothing to sniff at. 700,000. Fucking crazy. Buy a bigger cable uh, for the tour bus for the death matches. Y- yeah, <laughs> definitely. Buy yourself a new PC. Whack it in the toilet. <laughs> um, the final thing that we got was selling significantly less than Puff Daddy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a remix of Democracy by Killing Joke in 1998. Um, this is the remix of the title track of the uh, post-punk legend's 10th album, Democracy from 1996. Uh, a much better album, actually. I went back because I, I did, you know, I, I ranked all of the Killing Joke albums for Louder. Mm. And uh, Democracy ended up being pretty high. It's much better than I remember it and thought it was, to be honest. Probably much better than it had any right to be. Um, and and this, is a, this is a really, really great song. I think in, initially, Democracy is a great song. Mm. Um, it's from the 1998 compilation War Dance the Remixes back in 1998. If people didn't, if people were caring less about Night's Nails, they weren't giving a fuck really, about Killing really Joke. They really didn't give a fuck about Killing Joke. Um, but I think the fact that Night's Nails are here alongside such luminaries as UX, Deidre, Man with No Name, and California Sunshine should tell you that this is the big track from this record. Yes. I also do not know who any of those people are. So <laughs> Thank God. You've, got to, you've got to wonder why Trent Reznor is here. I guess he just really fucking loves Killing Joke. I mean, that surely is the only reason. It, it must mm-hmm. be, you know, and you can believe it, you know, incredibly influential post-punk stroke industrial band. Of course, Trent bloody loves them. Um, yeah, I really like the original version of Democracy, um, obviously, because it's Killing Joke. Uh, I don't know their career with nearly the same level of kind of, um, well, analytical perspective as you do i mean obviously you did go back and decide sort of you know a definitive ranking for them for louder um democracy is not a killing joke album i'm massively okay with but i do really like the original upon visiting it sort of properly for the first time um i think the remix is cool i think it's probably the least interesting bit of these misc tracks that we're talking about though because it is extra heavy more embellished um gets rid of the spangly guitar feel and basically just goes for a kind of bit more of a i don't know jagged lumbering kind of straight up industrial song i think it's cool i think it again informs ideas that form the bedrock of the fragile or that end up becoming the fragile but um it's probably my least favorite one of these four but it's interesting to hear a nine inch nails product of any sort uh with a bit of double bass drumming on it well, I like to, the bit that goes goes into the that heavy bit from one by Metallica, doesn't it? Yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. It goes like, into that. That's new. That's new for Trent. So mm. that's cool. I think this is probably the biggest outlier of the things we have as evidence as to what the fragile is going to sound like. I mean, yeah. I'm not really sure that any of them, uh, bar that little kind of opening bit to the perfect drug, really tell you that much. No, but. Uh, 
this really says nothing about it at all because i mean you know it basically does sound like you say like a full-blown industrial metal banger from the early 90s really yeah. he's kind of gone in on that um but yeah considering like the amount of stuff that we had from all over the place that night has been releasing since pre Hate machine came out to get one original song three remixes stroke covers and the soundtrack to a game in four years mm. it's pretty mad really and it all adds up to the idea that there's either something really really big coming or and this was a genuine concern i think we weren't just weren't ever going to see nine inch nails ever again yeah i mean as you say the kind of radio silence that reclusive stuff and the lack of lack of things coming out after a you know well documented debauch tour that basically pushed him to the brink it's like yeah i can believe that people would kind of assume maybe that Nine Inch Nails wouldn't come back, that that might just be it, mm. you know, kind of two two albums and done. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. And I think um, the next thing to talk about really is one of the big sort of outside of music, certainly the big emotional kind of cr crusher for Trent Reznor during this period. Um, when he was six... Trent's parents split up and he moved in with his grandparents, Bill and Clara, who raised him. Uh, They're very encouraging to young Trent to make music um, when it's sort of clear to them that he had a gift for hearing things in a certain way. His grandfather said music was his life. From the time he was a wee boy, he was so gifted. Uh, so when he was 12, he started to have piano lessons, classical piano lessons, mm. as encouraged by Clara, his grandmother. Um after the Antichrist Superstar album came out, when Trent Reznor really should have been working on new material for The Fragile, Clara, his grandmother, passed away, which hit him incredibly hard and again stalled the creation of this record even more. In fact, like we just sort of touched on, there's been more than a few suggestions from Reznor that he just wanted to give up entirely mm. and that he just lost all passion for music. There's an interview he did with Kurt Loder at MTV and he says, I was really, really unhappy and I was really disillusioned with a lot of things and I didn't trust anybody. I wasn't sure what I wanted to say musically and so I didn't. I just, I thought rather than put a record out that was unfo that was an un unfocused mess, I wasn't really ready as a person. I was dealing with the death of someone very close to me. Uh, Kurt Lady says, your grandmother, right? Resnick says, yeah, who raised me? And I didn't deal with it. I just put it off because I didn't know how to deal with it. No one around me ever died. And all during this time I'm getting please come back and save rock. Hey, I didn't ask to save rock. I don't even like rock that much. So really, about one time, and this is about two years ago, I really said it was time to get going. Um, it came down to really sitting down and facing myself again and remembering that playing music was always what saved me in the past. It made me feel like I had something to offer. Um, he also mentioned to Kerrang in their cover feature that I was talking about um, prior to the album's release on their issue on the 25th of September 1999. He said, when I when it happened, I shut off. I was frighteningly numb throughout the whole thing. I don't mean fucked up numb. I was just sitting there waiting to rot and I didn't deal with it. It came to a point where I just thought, what the fuck else? God damn, I'm not equipped to deal with this stuff. I'd never dealt with a family death before. It really came down to me thinking, do I want to do this? I don't know anybody who stopped when they're at the height of their career other than those that killed themselves which I wasn't wanting to do. Again, it was about remembering that I liked music. It's this event and that realisation that he has 
kind of no passion for anything that is a very clear sign of clinical depression mm. as i'm i'm aware of it that the things that you used to love doing you just don't want to do anymore yeah i i'm under the impression that that's uh so i so i understand it that is sort of what happens to you in in those things uh in those in these kind of events and in 1997 he was diagnosed with depression prescribed antidepressants which he actually stopped taking very very early on yeah and then he checked himself into rehab and i guess that's the sort of the bottom the final bottom you think you listen to downward spiral and you go there's a man at rock bottom but it's actually not this is the rock bottom for trent reznor yeah i mean so yeah i i can i can speak to personal experience with um clinical depression i mean that is absolutely on the money is um the things that you love just have no luster anymore you know i i've had times in my life where it's like i don't even want to listen to music even though <laughs> every single tattoo i've got every i mean most of my shelf space is taken up by records and cds and books about music and posters of music that i still haven't put up and framed and stuff like that and to be in a position where you don't want that anymore it is um maddening like so so frustrating and if that comes as a result of the person who has nurtured that thing that you love in you from such a young age i can't imagine how trent would have felt i've not <laughs> thank god so far not lost anyone um as close to me as trent was and well, you know, still is i suppose in a spiritual manner to his grandmother um yeah the the absolute pits like it does not get lower than that for him yeah yeah and so you know going into actually working on the fragile and i guess sort of trying to use that mindset Mm. is actually that kind of bottoming out leads to the conceptual idea of and the, I guess the birth of the concept of the, of the fragile. In the Kerrang interview, he says, the downward spiral was a descent, shedding skin, taking off a layer and analyzing it, arriving at a point. This one starts at the bottom. Um, like I say, it's 997 and we have nothing for, for the fragile. Mm. Three years now after the downward spiral has come out and he's got nothing. He'd written some pieces, discarded some pieces, he was suffering from writer's block. Um, apparently, during therapy sessions, he was told by his therapist that he had this cr- a crippling fear of failure. The only thing that he decided on with the record, by all accounts, was the name, The Fragile. Mm. And everything else comes from naming that record, The Fragile. Uh, he rented a house in California to try and write new music. It was on the hills overlooking the ocean overlooking the sea a a kind of quiet peaceful serene place to go and work on material only one piece of music that made it onto the fragile was used um at this time and that was the song lemur uh says lemur was one of the first songs we wrote and i wasn't sure it was going to be a nine inch nails song i just thought it was some abstract piece um as we kind of touched on at the start resner famously sort of ignored and ignores modern contemporary music and during this period instead retreated back to the music he listened to as a child to try and gain inspiration the wall by pink floyd Mm. the white album 
by the Beatles, Bowie's Low, other kind of very, very high concept, demanding, deep records that sort of require your attention from start to finish were the things that he was sort of devouring and decided that he wanted to make something which was similar in style, structure and depth to those records. Uh, he says, when I started the downward spiral, I had certain things I wanted to address. I had a blueprint, certain song titles that fit into that theme. I had to just fill the blanks in to this concept type record. With the fragile, I started with the idea that there is no idea. Just let the music flow out of you. And the first, I don't know, 20 demos were all abstract instrumentals, but they were trying to sound like anything. But they weren't trying to sound like anything, sorry. I realized that the concept, the blueprint of the fragile was going to be subconsciousness. Whatever felt right to come out of me, let it come out because somebody says, oh, writer's block. I was afraid to write, which is a form of writer's block. But once I let myself write, it was okay not to push myself in this way and instead just see what comes out. And when I started recording, we just let things go, go off in tangents. It always felt like 99% of the time we weren't wasting time. I let that go before I said, right, now I know I want it to be this. I want to funnel it into that path. Um, one of the things that I found that I thought particularly relating it to The Wall, which I think is a very relatable album yeah. to The Wall in yeah. many, many ways. Um, the final thing he says in the, the Kerrang feature of, of The Fragile is there's a scene in the movie of The Wall where the guy smashes up a hotel room and tries to put it back together. As he tries, it's obviously not right, but he's trying to make semblance of things. That's a visual I've used in my head. It's helped me. So that is kind of what the concept of the fragile is mm. you kind of think of it, look at it in like it's weird because i've always thought of it as a double album but it's only actually been the last sort of little while that i've gone i suppose it is sort of a concept album. it is a concept album yeah but it's a very sort of obscurely abstract concept album it's not a concept album in the traditional how you would think of a concept album right like the wall or antichrist superstar or 2112 or whatever yeah it's not there's not a, a, a necessarily obvious theme that runs through it and i think it is so um open to interpretation i mean that's when we get to the end of the track by track that's one thing i'm going to be really interested to have a chat about is what is your kind of interpretation of the concept that is the fragile but um yeah i mean the idea of yeah deconstruction and rebuilding in whatever way shape or form you can i mean right down to the name just makes sense about the the fragility of these kind of um <laughs> of the things that make up your well your entire being basically um yeah i mean once again Trent Reznor what an erudite and incredible young man very very much so uh he says it to Kerrang as well uh, sonically we approached the songs with instruments that were broken not mic'd right or out of tune this isn't a tough hard machine like the downward spiral this one is rusted shot there's moss growing up the side of it clay and paper clips holding it together pieces can fall off at any time i tried to make it seem distressed on every level i could think of the concept of fragility molds it all together back in nothing studios Reznor and alan Mulder began to craft more and more musical parts that would make up the fragile at this point there is still no lyrics to anything on the fragile despite the fact uh, that they are starting to come up with more and more material for for the record that would be used um Reznor was feeling as though he was unable to really get a handle on what it was that he wanted to say with the album um finally the lyrics kind of came and he tackled his own grief his own doubts uh, in a much more i think open 
vulnerable way than the the nihilistic fury and anger that you hear on the downward spiral um he said the first year there was not really any lyric writing it took until the second year when i was feeling good about myself again confident in a lot of ways it's less intimate and it's also very much about the healing process the fragile was a more completive uh, more com contemplative the music took more of a front stage and i think that's good i think trent reznor is one of those people who genuinely can express uh it's clear how when he expresses himself through music the kind of emotional center point of that music you you, you don't need lyrics no for a lot of what trent Reznor is trying to create so i i think you you know and if any of you listen to like fragile deviations or whatever and you've heard the instrumental versions of these mm -hmm. songs they kind of work on a on an, an identical level to even the 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 songs in their kind of full lyrical form i think yeah absolutely i mean so as a sort of quick overview i mean like the first the first side there is so much of it where trent Reznor sounds enveloped and swallowed by the music it's uh, as he says you know he is not front and center on his own album at, at times on this and yeah i mean there are there are instrumental passages on on this album that i think are some of the most emotionally powerful piece of music i have ever heard and especially when mm. you take it as a whole piece and put it together like that i mean deviations yeah is um <laughs> could be a classic on its own to be honest yeah 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 uh which we probably won't have that much time to get into no anyway. <laughs> thank um, god yeah in terms of post-production as well we mentioned like the production of the record steve albini was there to help with the production of the record although you know it really isn't clear what bits steve albini does and doesn't have his fingerprints on on this record no i don't think so i mean am i right in thinking that he's just kind of broadly crediting with some mixing it's not attributed to any yeah. song or instrument it's like no i mean you know it all sounds pretty raw i mean maybe he did all of it Maybe he did none of it. Maybe he was just there for a day and said, detune that ukulele or something like that. I don't know. It's it very unapparent, <laughs> isn't it? Detune that ukulele. Uh, yeah, I would imagine that, um, you know, I that he, he probably did do that. Um, he definitely would have detuned a few ukuleles. That sounds like classic Albini. <laughs> sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we do know that Dr. Dre produced a song even deeper mm -hmm. came in and helped sort of production on the song even deeper which i didn't actually know until i got the album on vinyl about fucking five years ago oh mental. you lucky Did little you know scally i i'm waiting right i'm waiting until payday and I'm, I'm gonna get it off discogs because i mean i don't know when it's ever gonna get repressed but i'm gonna get that three lp version baby oh mate it's really good yeah, I need to. um but one of the key men that played a part in putting together the fragile as we know it was bob ezrin mm -hmm. who was the man who produced the wall obviously such a huge influence on this record as we've already said and after years and years and years of work trying to put this together full starts getting rid of material <laughs> telling charlie clouser that he was on the album when he wasn't <laughs> um and saying, i'm going to talk to the press and tell them that it's coming out next week um <laughs> yes after all that trent reznor was that exhausted that he was unable to detach himself from this project and had no idea how he was going to turn the fragile and the material that he had written for the fragile which you know is like a lot a fucking lot how was he going to turn it into a coherent album um in the liner notes of the fragile vinyl which i've bought uh and have behind me here all right don't there rub is it in. an yeah, sorry mate there <laughs> is an essay um by bob ezrin 
which is really, really interesting, really, really good. And um, he writes that he came in only weeks before the creation, uh, the end of the creation of the Fragile. He was in there for a couple of weeks. So uh, Jimmy Iovine of Interscope, who signed um, Nine Inch Nails and Dr. Dre, amongst others, uh, had told Bob Ezrin that Reznor needed some help to finish the album and that it wouldn't take more than a few days. Mm. So Ezrin tells of going up to New Orleans, staying in Nothing Studios, which he calls a goth Vegas, and um, saying that he saw Trent Reznor had a poster of The Wall Up, which he initially thought had been put there purely for his benefit. And it was only later that he uh, found out that it was definitely one of Trent Reznor's favourite albums mm. ever. There was over four hours of music for Bob Ezrin to sit through before he could go about crafting the album. Uh, it took him a day to familiarise himself with the material, uh, with extensive notes, as he says on this. Um, I'm kind of paraphrasing and running through like this piece, which is very, it's, very good. It's a very good, but very long essay. It is a very long essay, yeah. And um, he found a concept of his own, Bob Ezrin, about a girl who is somewhat damaged and often wretched and isn't alone and has someone in it together with them and she sinks even deeper into the quicksand of her depression. I know this sounds like one of those things they write on the tube. At the <laughs> yeah, it's all on the board, isn't see it? Ollie yeah. Merz. yeah, but um, but it's, it's Bob Ezrin's yeah. words. Oh, I yeah. hope you get I, closer than last time. Oh, <laughs> fuck yeah. off. Uh, I will be very hurt if you don't <laughs> like my version. Um but I think he's kind of right to use that as as a guide. Mm. And by the end of his allotted time in the studio, after a couple of weeks, the initial kind of first go that he had of it, over two discs, they were like, absolutely not, it's rubbish. Mm. But Reznor took a few days off and he had this idea in his head and he put the Fragile, kind of as we know it, together. He also, I found out, offered Trent Reznor a single disc version of it mm. and said this would be the bravest version to put out but Reznor didn't want to lose that much material I mean the Fragile's an hour and 20 minutes right um so uh, yeah. it's, uh, no it's, it's 103 minutes so yeah yeah it's um it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like an hour 44 basically hour 40 yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's much longer than that um and uh they had four hours so we had mm. to lose a lot already so Bob Ezrin was like you know you're gonna you lose most of this um but he also had this other version that he, he had come up with and Trent Reznor by all accounts cried the first time he heard Bob Ezrin's finished Master of the Fragile uh he said I'd never examined exactly what I was saying with these 20 something songs then I realized it could be looked at as two acts I see Ezrin as he's leaving my studio and I say Bob you did it man and he says yeah I know I've got a flight to catch we hugged each other and that was it yeah, I mean, um, I don't, I, I don't know if you came across this, and I don't know if you were going to bring it up, but I did find um, that there were, uh, it was uh, within um, a PDF I was able to find of the Fragile Tour um, like program that came out. There are pictures of like whiteboards of the initial ideas for some of the sequencing that they uh, that uh, Trent and Alan Mulder had come up with before Bob Ezrin got there, and quite how different that album would have been um i mean it's hard to think i haven't tried it in that sequence because i mean this album i just think is perfect and i think bob ezrin's sequencing work on this is stunning i mean i think it probably surpasses the wall in terms of consistency and flow and everything like that and them's big words because i mean it's the fucking wall but yeah i mean bob ezrin he's played a blinder here and i can imagine well i can only imagine 
quite how emotional Trent would have been um, to hear that. Do you know? Uh, do you want to know one of the original lineups? I don't know if you've got it to hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I don't actually. I've never seen this. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I'll send it to you for posterity at some point. So uh, there are two on this whiteboard. One of them's fairly rubbed out, so I'll just go with the very first original sequence of the Fragile, which would have been somewhat damaged into Le Mer, uh, into the Void, the Wretched, even deeper, uh, the New Flesh. Oh, uh, right. Uh, the day the whole <laughs> day of the world went away. Uh, complication, please. Starfuckers, rotation, the fragile. Um, I can't quite read that one, but another song that appears on the second half. Uh, stained 10 miles high, and it was due to end with pilgrimage. So it would have only been 16 songs ending with pilgrimage um, oh. when they were when they were looking at an initial rough idea for it before they brought in Ezra and was like, here's the four hours that we need to sort out, basically, as I understand it. I am delighted they didn't end with Pilgrimage. Yeah. I think that's too on the nose. I think so, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, which we'll get to in a little bit. Anyway, so there you go. So it got finished. That is how the Fragile came about, which means we now will delve into it track by track, starting with disc one. And, uh, you know, I suppose a Bob Ezrin... Uh, kept one thing from that initial thing that you um, you read out there. Start with Somewhat Damaged, which is such an, a fucking incredible opening song. That Jaws guitar line. Do, 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 do. It, it drips with threat. What a cracking way to open the album. I remember thinking when I first listened to it, having listened to so much tight, taut, thick electro throbbing precise nine inch nails over so many years i was like oh my god this sounds a bit out of tune mm. a bit kind of all over the place but it still sounds incredible i think it sounds far more real and quite a bit more analog sounding than previous nine inch nails material that i had heard and i think because of that it brilliantly sets its stall out for just what this record is going to sound like and more than that, though, it's just an amazing song. It pumps and it probes and it weaves and it ducks and it goes all over the gaff. And it just cranks that intensity up bit by bit by bit. Poison to my rotten core. Too fucked up to care. I mean, when you get to that level of intensity, mm. goodness me. Yeah. Killer. Killer. Um, I mean, I think it's well known that Trent Reznor knows how to open an album. Somewhat Damaged might might be my favourite Nine Inch Nails opening track. Like, as far as a track one, side one, so to speak, I think Somewhat Damaged might yeah. just take the crown. I think it's absolutely fucking incredible. The claustrophobic anxiety that builds around that four-note riff that is, you know, kind of steel guitar with a detuned ukulele being pizzicatoed behind it. It's all, I don't know, it wheezes and it aches and it croaks. And then it just keeps building with that pounding rhythm that feels like it's just in a different time signature where sometimes it matches up into this 4-4 um, four, four stomp. Sometimes it and the guitars are a little bit off kilter. Trent going from like a sneering croon at times to, as you say, that full-throated, um, you know, broken, bruised, forgotten, sore, too fucked up to care anymore. It sounds hellish. And the way that cacophony of distortion just builds and builds and builds around him it is absolutely suffocating and i think it's it is the perfect way to 
as you say, set the stall, particularly for this conceptual, what, you know, I would say almost undeniably a continuation of the downward spiral because, I mean, as Trent says, that is going down the spiral. This is starting at the bottom and trying to claw your way back up. Whether mm. the, the kind of protagonist of the album does that, I think we'll find out when we get to the end of uh, Right With Decay. But um, I think it's absolutely staggeringly brilliant. Um, I was so jealous to see that they opened one of the, the Eden Project shows and a good friend of mine, Niall, hello, I know he's listening. They opened the Manchester date with this as well, which, Whoa. you know, I didn't go to either of them. This is why I need to go to every Nine Inch Nails gig from now on. Mm. Yeah. You really, you really, really yeah. do. It is a fucking incredible way to open this record. What a song. And it doesn't really dip no. uh, with no. the day the world went away. The first um, of the singles from this album, which we will talk more about in a little bit. I mean, it's a song that I think is um, usually considered a clear example of Trent writing about grief. Mm. And I guess by by uh, by proxy, kind of his grandmother's passing as well. Um this is amazing as well. Again, you know, like it's not really an industrial song. Um, it's too kind of driving and fractured. Again, you know, to no pun intended, to sort of be considered industrial in that way. It does sound really fucking analog, mm. but there's so much emotion, and you don't usually get like na 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 just a kind of na na or whoa whoa kind of from a band like night snails and trent Reznor, but he puts so much into that that na 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 thing that again like it just gives it loads of meaning it's mm. fucking amazing and I, I love again you know it just really takes its time to get going but when it does when it goes off at the end it's like a jet plane going off in your face and then you just hear it dissolve in front of you absolutely amazing scenes amazing scenes unbelievable song absolutely unbelievable i noticed it's the only thing that was pre-released um from the album it, well certainly in terms of singles i don't know if anything was leaked that i wasn't aware of but still think it was officially given out before and i think <laughs> i mean picking a single from this album it's, it's a tall order. I think this one does a great job of setting that scene because it is sparse, even though it is quite embellished with the amount of kind of layered distortion and the guitars that do come clattering in and crashing in. But the fact that it's just Trent and guitars, it's you know almost a kind of acoustic singer-songwriter, but played through 4,000 distortion pedals, 4,000 overdrive mm. pedals. It's got a calm kind of brokenness to it i think and i suppose kind of narratively for me it's the idea that this character they've gone from the paranoid torment of somewhat damage to they've they're resolutely clear on what is going to happen next and the rest of the album is the kind of unfolding of the decision on those actions and i feel like this is the turning point for that character who you know if you've only listened to the fragile you've been with for best part of five minutes um mm. it's it's a beautiful song. It's heartbreaking and bleak. Um, and I think all, all of those words are applicable to the album as a whole. But I absolutely love it. Um, and hearing those, the kind of the moan of the guitars, and particularly those shrill little cuts that come through the wow, wow, you, you'll all know the bit if you've heard it. That kind of is a motif carried over from Somewhat Damaged, where you have them even more biting and cutting. 
I think it just sets up for the fact that you can, <laughs> this is one of those albums where you know, even from your first listen, that you're going to pour over it for years because there is so much reincorporation and so many ideas that repeat back on each other and reflect one another, even across this and the downward spiral, I would say. You know, they are absolutely companions despite the five-year gap and, yeah, you know, kind of, well, I was going to say thematic difference. I mean, I suppose it's just that one gets even bleaker and um, and it is more nakedly open, as, as you were saying, that Trent was saying, you know, there's far far less room for metaphor and misinterpretation like like there is for a song like Closer on this album. Um but yeah. Obviously two for two so far. I suppose spoiler, we're gonna be twenty three for twenty three by the end of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to be honest, yeah. Um yeah, it is fucking brilliant. We'll talk about the kind of release of it as a single when we get into the second part mm. just prior to the record coming out. But um yeah it was it was the first single and it's the first single that we will be speaking about from the record as well. Um I've put the frail and the wretched in. Interesting that you know you you didn't have the frail and the wretched next to each other on that non-Bob Ezrin version of it because I am putting these two in together because they are essentially, for me, one song. Mm. You get a lovely piano part, which is so deep and rich and beautiful sounding, but still kind of somber. And it leads into this threatening, almost kind of reptilian-esque dark rock club banger, which is sort of performed through this stalked, gritted teeth performance absolutely lovely stuff again one of the songs i think that seems to have become a bit of a standard bearer from this era even if they don't play a very massively fragile centric live set if you go and see them mm. you are likely to get these two into each other although he did play a little bit of a joke by doing the frail into something else i can't remember what it was at the uh the last tour um <laughs> what a joker but what a joker but uh it is it's fucking brilliant i mean that bit where he's like the clouds were apart and the sky cracks open and got himself for reaches fucking arms i mean that's amazing mm. every single time that makes me go oh fucking hell and it's just so apocalyptic um shit lyric lyricist though isn't he really Trent? oh yeah, I, mean, yeah, yeah I i prefer why does it always rain on me <laughs> which we'll get into in a little bit in the second part but yeah amazing the friend and the wretched fucking incredible back to back yeah, I'd definitely include them as um, one whole piece. Um, I mean, The Frail is, on its own, one of the most beautiful kind of pieces of morose music that's ever been put to tape, I think. It's absolutely staggering. And when he's reaching for the lower octaves of the piano and that bass just starts rising up, it's there's such a kind of palpable sense of dread coming in. It's like, oh God, I kind of don't want to carry on. But then you get The Wretched, which is, as you say, it's hulking, it's lumbering. Um, it's kind of like, it's got that stalking, hunting feel to it. And I actually think, not necessarily sonically, I think there are there are other songs on here that sonically are, are closer. But I think thematically, quite close to closer from the previous album. I think that um, kind of fractured conversation of something, in this case, I think it's the character talking to themselves in a kind of maybe schizophrenic internal conversation. They've got these the angel and the devil on their shoulder kind of thing um, with it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to, that refrain. Um, I think it's got that, yeah, kind of there is a dark presence hunting you down. You know, it wants to fuck you like an animal because it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. Um, Wretched's absolutely amazing. It's funny you say, though, about them, um, you know, being so inseparable, which I agree with. I've seen across the, you know, I've only seen Nine Inch Nails twice. I've seen them do three songs uh, from this album I've seen them do The Frail. I've never seen them do The Wretched. 
at the Royal Albert Hall, they did the frail. Oh, really? I forget what it led into, but it wasn't the wretched. Oh, is that true? I didn't, yeah. I didn't remember that. Get yeah. honestly, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. Okay, good. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's fucking brilliant. Mm. It's fucking brilliant, and I would be happy. It's nice that Trent's a you know hilarious joker, aren't you? <laughs> for not doing that, but you know um the class clown of industrial classic clown yeah Uh, but amazing um another single we're in this together released a week after the album on the 27th of september 1999 um like i say this was the second song to be released for it and i guess this is probably the i thought this would be the second most well-known single on the record this is the only one to chart in the uk got to number 39 in the uk singles chart fine um bit of a bummer that it didn't get higher and they didn't get more stuff on it mm. um but i just looked at their spotify stats and in the top 10 nine inch nails songs on spotify there's only one song from the fragile and it's this is it really number five wow it's their their um oh it's not even their fifth actually it's their because they've got this weird thing where it's not in order. Oh, so yeah, because goes... of, like, you know, how, what proportion of people are listening to it at one time. It's, like, it's popularity, but not over time, isn't it? Yeah, but anyway, sorry, go yeah, on. Yeah, so it's actually, it's actually their, um, their seventh most streamed song. No, the eighth. Eighth most streamed song. Blimey. Uh, yeah. Kind of... And the only one in the top ten from, this from the Fragile. Yeah, I mean... yeah. Kind of surprising because it is, you know, a seven minute and sixty, yeah, seven minute and sixteen second song. Um, I do actually, I can see how this one makes sense as a single though. I think there's such a strong melodic hook in that chorus, and yeah. I mean, for the first half of the album, it's probably one of the the brighter moments that we get. I would say, mm-hmm. um, because it, yeah, it's kind of it's made for rock clubs and stadiums, or not necessarily stadiums, arenas. It's made for big venues and small venues, um, and I can yeah I can see how people would really gravitate towards this. I can see why Trent would want it to be a single as well as Interscope because I think it does capture the mood and the kind of theme of the album really well in an approachable package. Um I mean 7 minutes 16 seconds. I know that wasn't the length of the single edit obviously, but yeah, I I think this is it's probably one where I've got less to say because I think it's one of the nicer tracks that we get on this album really or certainly side a so to speak but i do think it is staggeringly brilliant and i'm so pleased that well anything from the fragile is getting in the top 10 nine inch nails songs when you think that the downward spiral is right there let alone pretty hate machine you know so yeah i mean probably don't need to go into the other ones at the moment that the, nah. the, the ones above it are the ones that you would think yeah, yeah would be above it i mean the perfect drug has had more streams wow this song so you know um and he wasn't even very happy with that before was he so uh look i mean you know obviously this is very inspired by heroes by by bowie Mm. um both in terms of like it being ramped up and you know the kings and the queens lyrics in it as well i do remember when i first heard this being a little bit confused by the by the verses they seemed really disjointed to me especially when married with that absolutely mahoosive chorus. Mm. But these days, I actually like how they managed to do both those things. It's also got, for me, again, one of the great mid-song breakdowns ever as well. Surely that, that world, world is gone. <laughs> we have to hold on. And it goes in that thing. Amazing. 
absolutely amazing yeah i mean again this is a brilliant song it's a brilliant single it makes sense a single but edited uh yeah it's it's really good um we then move on to the title track which again into sort of reference it from other nine inch nails songs it sort of reminds me of piggy from the downward spiral yeah definitely but i'd argue that this is a far broader more interesting journey than that song um that hook of i won't let you fall apart Mm. and all the different voices coming in absolutely incredible when you get to the end and it just gets all distorted and kind of fucked up it's so good man this is this is brilliant this is absolutely brilliant yeah another staggering song from trent Reznor. um this this one for me i think i'm kind of going back to my idea of the concept um or my interpretation of the concept this is kind of the antithesis of what's going on in the wretched where i think that's the paranoid conversation with the side of you that hates yourself whereas this is the one that's trying to save you kind of thing and it is that Mm. that you know that massive choir the um the multi-layered vocals of i won't let you fall apart all building up on those twisted droning synths and detuned guitars that are just you know they're just not right i mean it is all still fractured and it is fragile but this feels like it is one that is desperately trying to claw the main character back from what that what they are going to and what they inevitably end up doing in the kind of the parable of this album i suppose um Mm. it actually you know it's another one that is actually beautiful and relatively speaking a warmer track on what is a resolutely cold and cold and black and infinite album i suppose you could say if you were going to reference branches bones from what 19 years later <laughs> yeah thereabouts yeah, yeah. so, so yeah, that's yeah, good yeah. yeah i mean you know to go like oh it's another good one like they're all fucking amazing yeah on this record, frankly yeah. but i do think oh, it's hard to pick favorite songs but the fragile was always one of those ones i don't i don't when i think of the album i don't necessarily straight away think of this song but when it comes on, I'm like, Jesus, this is amazing. Mm, I think this is fucking amazing. I feel the same where it's not one that I would Im- immediately pick as a favorite because I would never listen to that song in isolation, like somewhat damaged or the day the world went away. I could just stick on on their own or we're in this together or a couple on the, on the, on the second side of the album, the title track of the track of the fragile. I feel like it needs, it needs the lead in and the outro from the songs that surround it to really make an impact. But yeah, it is. A particular high point on an album full of very, very high points. Yeah, really great. Uh, Just Like You Imagined is one of the more instantaneous instrumentals on the record, I think. It's just got that big careering groove. Lots of very, very Trent Reznor-esque disjointed piano parts Mm. and a really cool riff that underpins it. It's glorious. And when it goes all kind of schizoid... um, unpredictable at the end i think it's really good as well lovely stuff that is one of the ones that i have probably less to talk about to be honest um yeah i could kind of broadly well i mean broadly my my kind of take on this one um it feels like a, a fantastically kind of heavy point of ultimatum in the narrative um it's mostly instrumental and to me it's the one that feels most like it's kind of ready for soundtracking some sort of cyber goth um piece of media whether it's a video game or a film so i guess it's somewhere between quake and lost highway isn't it um it is a bit yeah bowie's uh and uh, smashing pumpkins uh pianist mike garson who we mentioned earlier and mm. i said on oh, none of them on the album of course he actually was on the album uh as well doing this little bit um 
and you know sounds good yeah it's it, it is good yep very strong indeed um yeah yes uh even deeper is the next one the dr dre one like i said i didn't actually know this dre came in and did uh, did some work on it it's cool isn't it the idea of those two working together mm. it's a really really cool thing this is you know when i think when you think oh trent Reznor's working with dr dre you think it's gonna be a big fucking banger but it's not really is it it's not a big fucking it's weird that they would pick dre to work on this song in particular this is much more kind of lo-fi shuffling mm. slightly ambient thing it's got a bit of a garage rock guitar riff on it as well yeah. and there's a bit of that kind of zeppelin-y eastern mystic stuff in there as well um i think the chorus elevates this song from good song to brilliant song um do you know how far this has gone that kind of self-examinatory hateful sort of self-loathing thing mm. which um which Trent is known for. I think he does that very well in this. And it's got a really cool ambient fade out at the close as well. It's good. Yeah. Um, I really, really like the production um, choice on this. As you say, it's not what you'd necessarily expect from Dre and Trent Reznor working together in 1999. I mean, it, no, no secret that I'm not massively au fait with everything Dr. Dre's done. But I know, you know, kind of <laughs> his reputation as a producer. Um, and yeah, you don't expect it to be this kind of more looser slightly woozy kind of punch drunk songs that you get here but um yeah um a staggeringly brilliant chorus uh again um and i think it makes sense for me to have something that is a little bit go into a sort of slightly lighter ebb at this point in the album before we get to um the grinding industrial horror vignette that is pilgrimage that definitely should not have ended the album no definitely not <laughs> i mean look this is the one that's been lifted straight from the wall, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I remember reading that he'd, you know, those sort of quotes about being inspired by the wall in the interviews and then getting to song and going, oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's quite blatant. It's the chat almost, the <laughs> yeah, it's almost ripping it off rather than being inspired by it. Mm. It's as close, because it's funny to look back on him going, ah, oh, you know, the perfect drug. It, it was too close to something else. It's like, well, this is really close. Like, I, I still like it. Yeah. It sounds great. Um, I remember thinking when I heard this, I was like, I wonder if he would start this, start a set with this. Because I think he could have, like, played it before they come out and just got people, because it's quite a sort of icky, scary, mm. sort of, nor you know, nauseous... Um, sound and i think it does hark back to bits of the sounds of the downward spiral too as well yeah it's very good it's very threatening it really sounds like something from the wall um which doesn't make it bad but it certainly means that i think it's slightly less impactful because it is so close to the stuff from the wall it would fall on the weaker end yes i agree but um yeah i, I do like it as a kind of gnarly dynamic shift from where we've been i mean this is where things are starting to get really really ugly in a way they haven't really been since someone damaged on this album which probably for the best because you know we're approaching the kind of what 40 minute mark at this point and i think resolute kind of claustrophobic bleakness for that long um we probably wouldn't be talking about this album in the same way um but no pilgrimage i'm i'm good with i did also think i mean obviously another album that is heavily influenced by sort of the themes of the wall it did really make me think of um antichrist superstar but as a kind of dichotomy to that where instead of watching some manipulative machiavellian figure ascend through um kind of the ranks of popularity and adoration 
here we see someone who absolutely hates themselves dragging them down to the pits of despair while a, a yeah. while a crowd basically watches and cheers them on. So yes. <laughs> Yeah. Cheerful. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's lovely stuff, yes. like, isn't it? Um, yeah, so, but it's still good. Like, mm. it is, uh, you know, again, everything on this record is good. No, you don't. Uh, I absolutely fucking love Yeah. I think this is amazing. As soon as it slowly comes in, it's almost got the same sort of thump and pace of Bullet the Blue Sky by U2. Ah, uh, yes. Some of you might not know that, but it does, right? But then obviously it gets a lot heavier yeah. and a lot more aggressive than that. It's maybe one of the very few songs in this album that sounds slightly of its time. Yes. I think it's it, you can go, oh, that sounds a little bit sort of 1999. But it really wins out when it gets to the bit where he just goes, no, you don't. And when he gets to the no, you don't bit, and it gets really heavy. And it does get very heavy as mm-hmm. well. I think Trent Reznor is a fucking master at just plucking hooks from out of nowhere. Seemingly randomly just going, oh, I've just found this really, really amazing hook. It's sort of in my back pocket, like a fiver that you didn't know was there. <laughs> and he does that on this song. And it's it's wicked. This is a great song, I think. Um, yep, completely agree. It's the first time you hear anything approaching a more danceable rhythm. Um, I think it's, you know, it's got a bit in common with Starfuckers that comes in on the second side. Um, feels like it would have been an obvious single, but probably one that was so obvious and unrepresentative of the album. I'm not surprised at all that Trent did not elect for it to be put out there. Um, yeah, it's nice to hear more intricate percussion and that kind of the, uh, the really kind of tiddy flow of the hi-hat going on. It's nice to have that. It does give you a bit of a break in amongst what has up to this point been, you know, ambient but aggressively ambient for quite a lot of the time because of the amount of distortion that's been thrown at everything. Um, I think it's awesome uh, and it's nice to have something that does kind of break up the the slab of blackness that this album is. And I always mm. kind of forget that this album does have those bangers in there because you do. When I've not listened to the Fragile for a little while, I do just think, "Oh, what a tough listen!" And you know, none of it is cheerful, none of it's nice. But there are bits where you can actually sort of bob along to it, and this is definitely one definitely. of them. Definitely one of them. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And I do really like the way he kind of gets swallowed by that very quickly growing distortion at the end that segues to the next song, um, which uh, you have already already referenced at this uh, during the special. Le Mer, or The Sea, as it translates into French. Um, I'm going to talk about seeing this live on the tour in a little bit, which I think was genuinely unforgettable and magical. I, I think, you know, it's the very first song they wrote for the album. And yeah, I can see why Trent Reznor would think this isn't a Nine Inch Nails song. I think this maybe is the finest instrumental, if you can call it that, because it's not strictly an instrumental. Mm-hmm. There are not his vocals, but there are vocals on it. Spoken word vocals, quite low in the mix. But if you're going to call it an instrumental, I think this is the best instrumental that Nine Inch Nails have ever done. I remember hearing it for the first time and it just blew my fucking mind. Those keys, that very, very simple piano refrain is so beautiful. It's just such an interesting piece of composition in terms of how lovely and catchy and seductive that sounds. And then when you get that popping bass and those weird jazzy, you know, when the drums come in and almost sort of go out of their way to ruin it Mm. that underbelly is so different and so disorientating and yet it works so amazingly and it's so um unusual it's just a really weird 
it's just a really weird song i love this this there have been points where this has been my favorite song on the entire record and when you think of what's on this record that is for a fucking instrumental track to be like your favorite song on it that's pretty mental i think this is in- exceptional insanely brilliant this song i love it uh you'll get no arguments from me i think it's um absolutely gorgeous this kind of like shimmering piano track and yeah i i can see why it wouldn't necessarily be considered a nine inch nail song in trent Reznor's mind prior to its inclusion in the fragile i think it is completely unlike anything he'd done to this point um but i think it it makes so much sense to me that this would be the first thing that was written that was included on um, the fragile because I feel like this is the the sort of this is the point in the story that I think informs everything that the album is about because um, for me this is the character basically in the throes of um, of suicide essentially this is what I hear and to think about you know Trent looking out over the ocean thinking about the loss of his grandmother and struggling with those um, emotions himself I think yeah this this is kind of the fragile distilled or the the idea of the fragile distilled into four minutes and 37 seconds of the most beautiful music, just the most Mm. beautiful music. And it was interesting that you mentioned the kind of clattering drums that go out of the way to ruin it. Cause naturally I think that draws allusions to um, piggy in particular from the downward spiral, the French Creole voice in the background, one of the mantras that they are repeating does roughly translate to nothing can stop me now. So there is a direct link back to the themes of the downward yeah. spiral there. I think it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's so good. And the first disc, the first half of the Fragile closes with The Great Below, which I think is, again, those that one, two, Lemur into The Great Below mm-hmm. is an absolutely incredible way to close this first disc. Really, really great. I think if that was the end of the fragile you'd still be talking about an all-time classic yeah. 10 out of 10 record this is i guess maybe comparable a little bit to hurt you could say although it's a slightly lazy comparison because i think thematically and even musically this isn't really the same thing but if anyone in contemporary alternative rock can do beautifully poignant moving balladic pieces in heavy music then Trent Reznor is the man and this song is just incredible really isn't it again Mm -hmm. you know that feeling of being at sea and the water being washed away all of those sort of similar thematic elements that drive the song that seem to come from a place where all Trent had was his own sadness and a name and looked out across the ocean I think you can kind of you can feel and hear all of that. And this almost feels like, again, talking about the concept and the thematic whatever um, of what this album might be about or what it means or where we go. I think if you go from somewhat damaged, it's almost like you could say somewhat damaged is like walking off stage at Woodstock 94 <laughs> and the great below is standing on that, you know, yeah. that cliff looking out to the sea in Southern California and everything in between is what's been going on absolutely um that that's definitely i mean yeah i think that makes a lot of sense because there is obviously so much of trent poured into this album as there is with everything trent Reznor has done with nine inch nails but i think this one in particular i think he he lays bare his soul so so starkly and vulnerable 
you know, with such vulnerability. Funnily enough, you know, I think <laughs> it is interesting to see the way that Corn would go, as you say, kind of in terms of what they were writing about by 99, where I feel like Trent got even closer to what they were doing on their debut with the Fragile um, than he was doing in 94 himself. Um, mm. Yeah, I think I think this is um, a really well-pitched, not overblown, but grandiose, kind of spacious epilogue for the first half of the album. And um, if I'm following my narrative... I feel like this is essentially this is our character kind of slipping out of the mortal coil because the way Trent fades away and then there's this kind of, I don't know, weird dissonant chiming like a bell, but something that's been fashioned from rough sheet metal, something really coarse and something not fit for purpose. Again, that kind of deconstruction and rebuilding, but not quite as it should be um, theme coming back through. I feel like that's them kind of passing on to perhaps a different plane that maybe will be explored in the second half of the album. Um and I did think, yeah, I think the Hurt comparison is a bit obvious, but there is one bit that I just couldn't shake where um, the delivery of the chorus, the um, and I descend from my grave in my arms of undertow, I will take my place in the great below. It's very, very close to the melodic line of I will let you down, I will make you hurt. Um, I think there is a comparison there and probably one that is so obvious that it's, you know, it's very deliberate. I think beyond that, comparisons to Hurt don't massively hold water. But um, yeah, I think it's a, a very, very impressive way to end what, yeah, as you say, already is a 10 out of 10 album. Yeah, for sure. So there you go. That's disc one. That is the first half of The Fragile. We're going to go and head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash true cop pop, where if you sign up for £5 a month, you can get the second part, which should already be over there waiting for you right now if you want to hear us dissect disc two and talk about the aftermath of this album. We will be talking about the tour, me seeing them on tour. We will be talking about what happened and did Trent Reznor get happy. We'll be talking about diarrhea, both invented real, well, not real, but real diarrhea that was invented and meta metaphorical diarrhea Ooh. coming from the mouths of enemy <laughs> and pitchfork writers yes. so uh do join us over there for that but um i hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into the first half mm. and the creation of what is a bloody brilliant record now get on over to that patreon page and we'll see you over there last one there's a, a big ninny. See ya. <laughs>